CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, I think we're ready. Mm-hmm. Ben called someone by the wrong name in the hall earlier. That's real funny. <laughs> All right. <laughs> You're Ben Jarosky. Yeah, make fun of the old guy. <laughs> oh, hey, Scotty. <laughs> Who? His name's not Scotty. <laughs> Beat me up. Oh, Lord. Hang tight, millennials. All right. <laughs> Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, August 6th is just moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions for jumping on board and helping bring back our program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. A giant thank you once again to those unions for jumping on board, collaborating, getting together, and helping bring back our program. And, of course, today's show is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. The Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Tuesday, August 6th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, our Chicago Reader colleague, Maya Dukmasova, returns. We welcome Margie Fritz-Birch of the Edgewater Historical Society. And it's the return of David Glowatz, a.k.a. Mr. Bike. And now your host, also... Mr. Bike. He loves riding his bike. Uh, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Yeah, hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Gun Crazy Tuesday, and here's why. Well, I like to say great weekend, D. Do you have a good weekend? Yes, I uh, did. Okay. I like to say great weekend. You know, I always try to, s- to start off Tuesday with a little optimism, a little brightness, but it's really hard to do that uh, when confronted by the utter carnage in our country uh, this weekend. Uh, I did see you know, some movies and watch some TV and read some books. But every now, every time I uh, left the book, put the book down or left the movie theater or uh, turned off the boob tube, it just was carnage was all around me in the city of Chicago. 55 people shot, uh, seven killed over the, over the long weekend. Uh, in El Paso, of course, uh, a gunman, 22 people, I believe it is, uh, shot uh, dead at a Walmart uh, in El Paso, Texas. Uh, in Dayton, Ohio, less than 24 hours later, what was it, seven people killed by a gunman in uh, Dayton, Ohio. Now, all these different murders and these shootings, different uh, factors, different settings, uh, different gunmen. Oh, there's multiple gunmen in the city of Chicago. Uh, the 
the the shooter in El Paso apparently uh, had uh, some kind of obsessive uh, hatred for Hispanic people. Uh, the shooter in Dayton, uh, Ohio, I'm not quite sure uh, what was motivating him as if there could ever be an explanation uh, for going into a nightclub and shooting people or shooting people outside of a nightclub, including his own sister, utter insanity. Uh, the New York Times and several other outlets have had uh, various articles trying to explain why it is that uh, there are so many more mass shootings, so many more shootings in the United States of America than any country in the world. And they ran down the usual list of suspects or re- reasons, possible reasons. Uh, they talked about violence in videos, violence in music, violence in movie. In other words, the cultural violence that's all around us somehow as our other uh, breaks down our resistance uh, to violence in general and makes us, you know, more uh, like. We don't think it's real. Uh, there was that theory. There's just mental illness that's untreated. Uh, uh, people not uh, going to get the proper care that they need or maybe the medication that they need, what have you. There's the, uh, that theory. Uh, but then they say they talked about how uh, these were also issues in other countries. Uh, countries all over the world have access to the same videos, the violent videos, the violent music, the violent movies, the violent TV shows uh, that we have in this country. Mental illness, of course, knows no borders, so it's not like it's just to the United States. They came to the conclusion. It's the only logical conclusion that anyone can come to. It's still the same conclusion we've been talking about for years and years. Guns. There's too many guns in America. And there's just, it's so easy to buy them. It's so easy to hoard them. It's so easy to stockpile them. It's so easy to buy the bullets you need. It's just like people can have their own individual armories that they go around and just shoot people. Uh, And there's such resistance to anything re- remotely resembling a gun registra- uh, gun restriction law in this country. I know there's a solution. We've been talking about this since the 80s. I recall uh, a lawyer is telling me about this, that if you have any kind of law, uh, if you expose gun manufacturers to product liability law, that would force them to uh, crack down on their own industry. In other words, if you held them responsible for the carnage caused by the weaponry that they sell, that they freely sell, then maybe they would have their own restrictions. Maybe they would require uh, background checks. Maybe you would, they would uh, restrict the, the sales of the really uh, heavy-duty weaponry that, we don't, that you can't even possibly justify owning. Uh, but no, they can't get those laws through. In fact, there's a law that Congress passed a law that just does the opposite, that exempts them from product li- liability. Uh, it, it, it is a craziness in this country, this notion, this obsession that we have with guns. It's not enough to own one gun. You have to own two guns or three guns or four guns. Uh, it's as though so many people in this country feel as though their individual rights are just directly linked to their ability to have multitudes of weaponry, and they'll resist any attempt uh, uh, to regulate it. it and I recall when the, the shootings happened in Connecticut, uh, it was in 2012, a gunman went in and shot, how many was it, 20 children, 20 school children? Even then they couldn't uh, pass uh, re- stringent gun re- legislation. And I recall Alex Jones went on the radio and said, uh, it, 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 they made it up, that he suggested that they, perhaps the shootings didn't even occur. That's how far the gun lovers will go in this country uh, to resist. They'll just say, well, they made it up. Maybe it didn't really happen. So you watch in the in the next few days, you're going to see propaganda coming out, uh, trying to um, uh, undercut the significance of what went down in El Paso or what went down in Dayton or blaming it on, again, 
videos and blaming it on music and blaming it on mental illness, which is bizarre. Donald Trump, President Trump talks about mental illness as a factor and never does anything about mental illness. <laughs> There's no money, uh, extra money spent to open more clinics or hire more therapists or put counselors in schools or uh, get people the help of the assistance that they need to cope with the insanity of life. They just talk about it in the aftermath of a shooting uh, in order to detract people from moving for some sort of meaningful gun legislation so i think uh it can only be called insanity folks when you know what the solution is and yet you continue to look the other way we got a great show today everybody maya dukmasova will be in the studio from the chicago reader yeah it's been a while since maya's been in here she's got a lot of things going on in her life but she has a lot on her mind she said she wants to talk among other things uh about uh tony morrison the impact tony morrison just passed i don't know if you saw that uh i, saw, I got the text uh, or the uh, news update before i came in the studio the great uh, nobel prize winning author tony morrison passed away so she wants to talk about tony morrison and talk about local politics as well uh margie fritz birch will be in the studio she's from the Edgewater Historical Society. You may have read about her in the Tribune uh, or seen her on the Kenny Davis show. Uh, she, her mother was a juror at the Chicago 7 trial way back when in 1969, and that's when the federal government put uh, activists on trial for um, inciting a riot, allegedly inciting a riot. This is way before your time, millennials, way, even before uh, the Generation Xers is before your time. Uh, old, old folks like me remember it. A pivotal moment in uh, United States activism at the height of the uh, anti-war movement. Uh, and uh, Marjorie Fritz Birch's mom was one of the jurors. She has a diary. And we'll talk about what is uh, the, some of the common themes of what's going on in this country from 1969 to now. And then Dave Glowatz, our good friend of the show, Mr. Bike himself, will be coming into the studio bringing his bike bell. Ding, ding, ding. We're going to be one can only hope that he brought that bell. <laughs> I told him, man, do not come into this studio unless you bring that bell. He's like, oh, maybe I will. Among other things, oh, great impression of him. <laughs> Ooh. Maybe he'll ex he's another one of these. I don't watch the debates because I'm too above that all. Okay, so we don't want our guests canceling. <laughs> Please stop making fun. Uh, Glowats. He's going to explain why he's above the debates. Uh, but he's also going to talk about, he's he actually read the city's report on Alderman and Prerogative. This guy knows everything about Alderman and Prerogative. Good God, we're going to sit him down and we're going to turn him upside down, metaphorically speaking, hey, and what? shake out the contents of his brain. It's a big brain. There's going to be a lot of contents. Every, hey, we're going to talk Lincoln Yards. Oh, my God, the city's fighting the Lincoln Yards lawsuit. Good God. City of Chicago, why are you wasting so much money on Lincoln Yards? Come on. Come on, city of Chicago. Wake up, all right? Uh, a lot of local politics to talk with Dave Glowatz. And I will also promote First Tuesday. That's tonight, D. Huh? Yeah, man, look at the brain on Brad. I've been saying look at the brain on Brad. It's looking the brain on Brett. How come you didn't tell me that? Huh? Ah, Brad sounds better. Okay. <laughs> You're the reason I say it. Anyway, we got a great first Tuesday show tonight, folks. We're going to solve health care in this country. Me, Mick Dumpke, Danny Weissman, Barbara Otto. We're going to solve it. We'll figure it out. When it's all done, it'll be like, no problem. Anyway, that's uh, first Tuesday at 6.39. Anyway, great show. A lot of political discussion. And uh, but before we do anything, there's a young man from Alton, Illinois, that we call the doctor, and he has the news. It's a great show. All this great stuff. But first, this douchebag's going to start reading the news. 
It's basically how that sounded. All right, everybody. It's a bit of, oh, by the way, Ben, congratulations. Yeah. Uh, the first uh, podcast host in podcast history to say boob tube. Oh, yeah. He no, said I said earlier. it before. Oh, okay. okay. Well, yeah, you got only... water all over me because you made me laugh. <laughs> Uh, great political discussion, but before we do that, uh, yeah, this, this guy is going to talk for a couple water minutes. Everywhere. Awesome. Water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. It's Whoa. middle of the day. Let's begin with uh, what's going on in Chicago and or Illinois this afternoon. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. I'm yeah. not a perfect person. <laughs> uh, has yeah. no public events scheduled today. Ooh. Ben, it's a cloudy 75 degrees Tuesday afternoon. What do you think J.B. Pritzker is doing right now? Uh, right now? He, right now. Uh, he, he is watch, He's at a matinee watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Not the boob tube. Uh, no, come on. He's not watching the boob tube. First of all, why would you watch this movie? Well, you can't see it anyway unless you have a secret. Uh, you know, he might have a secret video. You know, he's J.B. Pritzker, okay? <laughs> he might have called QT, Quentin Tarantino, and said, hey. I want that secret video. Uh, but I bet you he's watching. Because he's you know, like a baby. Isn't he a baby boomer? Yeah, I believe Isn't so. Isn't he yeah. born in the, before 1965? Baby boomers love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm not sure about anybody other than baby boomers. Uh, but uh, So that's my bet. That's what he's doing. Yeah, he's still talking about that movie, guys. He All right, listening to the Steve Miller band. That's something else he loves to do. And what was the other band he loved? The Eagles. The Eagles. I love the Eagles. Hell yeah. Don't blame him. Uh, and that's why we. That's why he says, I am not a perfect person. <laughs> I like the Eagles. But Leah, you like the Eagles? I do. Oh, you like the, uh, D, you like the Eagles? Absolutely. All right. Just another tequila sunrise. Anyway, go ahead. Young man. All right. But the governor did kick his week off by doing what he apparently loves to do more than anything else, signing legislation <laughs> bills. Good <laughs> Lord. Yeah, he loves care. it. By the way, completely opposite of the last guy in charge. Yay for our teachers. <laughs> Yay for our teachers. I think I hated doing his Router. job. Oh. <laughs> he really didn't like doing his job. He wanted to bankrupt the state. Remember, that was his idea. I know what I'll do. I'll Ugh. bankrupt the state, and then the unions will have to throw in it's all oh, good idea good idea bruce uh, i'm not in charge <laughs> I'm not in on charge. monday governor pritzker signed a bill aimed to fight discrimination against organ donors according to a press release from governor jb pritzker uh, the press release says quote the new law prohibits employers from retaliating against an employee for requesting or obtaining a leave of absence to undergo an organ donation and prohibits insurance companies from denying coverage or increasing premiums or rates for living donors for disability life and long-term care insurance mm -hmm. well i'm glad he signed it but it just underscores the utter madness of our system that there is discrimination uh for people who are organ donors or who need a donation you know listen i will be discussing this at uh, uh first tuesday um folks once you put the profit motive into healthcare, once you make it a matter of how much money you make for an insurance company, you're going to deny, start denying people coverage that they need, and you're going to lead to these kinds of things, this kind of discrimination. Uh, so we have to face that and confront that. It's right, th right up there. I think there's three issues that we, as a society, at the top of the list: uh, climate change, uh, healthcare, and our gun madness. And uh, I think of the three of them. Probably the healthcare is the most fixable. Um, I, would, I would hope anyway. But uh, so kudos to uh, JB Pritzker. But it's a shame that it, it had to come to a special law having to be passed for this. All right, he's signing a lot of bills. Ben, is there anything uh, in particular that you're waiting for uh, Governor Pritzker to sign? Any bill that uh, comes to mind, or Pritzker? 
knocking it out of the park as far as these uh, bill well, signings. It, uh, JB, how about a bill uh, outlawing Lincoln Yards tip deal? Oh, how about okay. that for a right. yeah, you're uh, dreaming there. That, yeah, that's dreaming. That's money, money, money. Someone's going to be making some of it. So uh, uh, we could have some uh, bill uh, outlawing tiffs uh, or drastically re, uh, restricting them. I would be. I really applaud that one. How about that's an easy thing to do. Come on, JB, get on that. In other statewide news, Illinois State Senator and dear friend of the Bendrovsky Show, the great Toy Hutchins. I'd say she had a pretty good weekend during the National Conference of State Legislators in Nashville, Tennessee, which Toy Hutchinson is the president of. Toy Hutchinson had the honor of introducing country music legend Dolly Parton to the stage. Here's the quote from Toy after the introduction. Quote, I've been smiling so hard my cheeks hurt. (laughs) Toy, a a big friend of the Ben Jarofsky show, Toy Hutchinson, that download, we just reposted it last week right toys man toy was on fire i think toy hutchinson has a future uh in country said, music <laughs> uh in uh, the media she should have her own show because she uh very passionate very smart and um can really fire you up but yeah, I, I i'm with her 100 you know d i love dolly part what's the name of the the movie leah with dolly parton sings all uh was on uh, netflix I was singing its praise not too long ago. Oh, I'm not sure. Oh, my God. Everybody's looking at me You're like... You're not talking about 9 to 5. No. 9 to 5 was in the 70s. Movie? What's that? Dolly Parton's in no, the movie. No, Dolly Parton is not in the movie. I talked about it endlessly. Uh, Dolly Parton, There, it's it's a story uh, about a couple of girls, and one of them loves Dolly Parton, is obsessed with Dolly Parton, and Dolly Parton's music is in... Oh, is it about the, the fashion, the pageant, beauty pageant? Yes, yeah, yes. Dumplin. Dumplin. There you go. Uh, that rekindled my love for Dolly Parton, and I will now sing a Dolly Parton song. No, I won't. Uh, but anyway... Oh, go for it. Let's hear Here it. Here you go again. And then... Oh. Man. Jolene. Oh, man. I thought I'd allow singing on the show. <laughs> Bad idea. Uh, anyway, so I can feel you with uh, Dolly Parton. She is a legend. All right. Now let's talk city news. The mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, is meeting or has met with CPD top brass today. Later, she is participating in the 15th Police District's National Night Out Rally Against Violence. Ben, let's challenge your Chicago political nerdhood. <laughs> You know your Chicago wards, but can you tell us where the 15th police district is? 15th police district? Hold on. Uh oh. <laughs> what is that? That's me beaming out to the. Uh, oh. I am now in my head doing a Google search. In my head, oh, not okay. on my phone. I'm like, <laughs> it sounds like Stalin to me, but okay. I would say it's Austin. Austin? Mm hmm. West Side. I'm looking it up right now. Hold on. Here you come again. <laughs> looking like you did. Uh, never heard that song, by the way. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. You should hear the Sonny Rollins version. It's, it's the best version. Yeah, of my I'm album. not going to do that. All, All right. right. Let's see here. Where is the 15th police? I'm pretty sure it's Chicago. Austin. Pulling it up. He says Austin. <laughs> it says 5701 West Madison Street. I would say that's Austin. Oh, far my west God. Side Guys, Chicago. what a dork. Am I right? <laughs> How does he know this stuff? Good Lord. <laughs> All right. So uh, that's going on there. Uh, we challenge your <laughs> history there. 
there. Boy, you're a dork. <laughs> oh, hey, we talked about this on Friday. What's Lollapalooza that? has came and went. Ben, which band was your favorite, by the way? Uh, Neil Diamond. Oh, yeah, really? I didn't, I didn't know he was there. Yeah, I think the low for the net. Um, <laughs> okay, Neil you got to stop sh- singing. <laughs> Neil Diamond, I believe, uh, and uh, the Bee Gees. Uh, uh, were the Bee Gees there this year? No, 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 no the Bee Gees weren't there. Uh, how right. about the Beatles? No, okay, the Beatles you there? weren't there. <laughs> Reports from the weekend came out saying that arrests at Lollapalooza more than doubled from last year. 31 mm. people were arrested this year at the four-day music festival, up from 12 arrests in 2018. That's according to Melissa Stratton, the spokeswoman for the Emergency of Management and Communications. But Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot said Monday that she wants even tougher security measures in place for next year's Lollapalooza Music Festival after several thwarted attempts at gate crashing during the four-day extravaganza in Grand Park. There was a lot of... Uh, Facebook social media videos of people jumping the gates. You see that? Yeah, yeah. Even I saw that. And I thought that, I saw you in there. <laughs> back in the day, I have to admit, back in the day, it's way before Lollapalooza. I would try to sneak into Northwestern football games. <laughs> I know, I really. And uh, we had many different methods employed to get into a Northwestern football game, including climbing over the fence, and then like a bunch. You get in with a big group of people, and like you'd be in the middle, and then you kind of dart in when the others distract the Andy Frayn ushers, and uh, many different uh, attempts to sneak into a Northwestern football game. Sometimes it worked, and I got into a Northwestern football. Well, I think JB Pritzker's speaking for you here. I'm yeah. not a perfect person, <laughs> but I never. Tried anything like math, you know, getting a like what was it, like a mass rush of 50 kids to try to get in? I don't know, man. I'll tell you what, uh, it's the kind of thing obviously I cannot condone. And when I saw it, it looked like utter lawlessness, but I had to think, I had to admit in my mind that's the kind of dumb thing that I probably would have done when I was 13 or 14 years old. You see what I was saying? See, D, I'm not one of those old timers. Oh, you're one of those old timers. No, I'm not one of those oh, old timers. Okay. You know, my time we didn't do stuff like <laughs> Yeah. All right. Okay. But they, there's two kinds of old timers. There's the ones who say they didn't do it, like, but then the others reminisce about all the stupid stuff they did. Oh God, you should have seen the stuff your uncle Eldon used to do back in the day. You know, <laughs> there really is. An uncle I'll take Eldon. old guy voiceover singing any day. All right. All right. Anyway, so I, it, it, as an old guy, I was like, you creeps, lock them up. But then there was a part of me that said, ah, eh, you know, I probably would have been one of them back in the day. Now listen, I don't want to get our mayor into uh, any hot water with our hip Chicago youth, all right? After the event, (laughs) the mayor did describe Lollapalooza as a, quote, great experience for Chicago and a magnet for music aficionados from around the world. Uh, I bet you she did not go to one concert. We talked about this the last time. I guarantee you, Lori Lightfoot has tastes similar to mine. Uh, The few times I've interviewed her, I sense that. I could could feel it. And the fact that she loves Todd Rundgren just underscores that. I bet you she's a huge Neil Diamond fan. She She's even Lori Lightfoot's a little ashamed to admit how much she loves Neil Diamond. Okay, and all uh, of a sudden Lori Lightfoot loves <laughs> Neil Diamond. And uh, so I don't think she liked any of the groups that were. Uh, by the way, can I just say we? I um, one of our listeners wanted me to listen to uh, Nirvana. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, it turns out that I know Pat, that Pat Rod. Yeah, Pat Rod. I know that song. Okay, Drain You. He's so listening right now. Yeah, so I know that song. I listened to it, and uh, yeah, man, give me a review. How many stars? 
I would give okay, not a big fan of the music itself, Don't but you the lyrics. Jump on this podcast and all oh, the lyrics. Yeah, okay. the lyrics. I, I'm like, those are some deep lyrics, man. You know about exchanging fluids, you know, eating the meat, passing it back and forth. I mean, there's some d- deep lyrics. Oh boy, had some issues that he was really working out, and uh, so more and more, uh, if I may, I find myself vibing on the the, the lyrics and not the music, and it's really uh, true with uh, rap songs because I just don't like the sound, but like when I break it down, I'm like, oh man, there's some deep stuff going on here. And I, I had the same feeling when I train you is the name of the song. Oh, okay. train yeah, you. Yeah, train so you, you liked the lyrics. Uh, what about the music? If you could uh, describe it in one word, I, what was the word you used before the show? <laughs> Loud. I think <laughs> obnoxious. Uh, maybe? No, I did not say obnoxious. <laughs> oh, okay. Pat, that's what you said. But no, I, I like Nirvana. Pat Rod weighed in and put, yeah, yeah, no, it was, uh, the, I'm telling you, man, that li- the thing about, uh, he's going to chew his meat and shit. Whoa. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Cobain, um, there's some stuff yourself. going on in that brain that is for certain. She was meat. Yeah. All right, and finally, you know, one alligator incident in Chicago is cute, but three in one month is just flat out alarming. Oh man. yeah. Chicago police found several guns, drugs, and yes, an alligator Monday during a search of an Albany Park home on the northwest side. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hey, what about those uh, first two things they found? Yeah, listen, but here, what's up with all these pet alligators, <laughs> yeah, all right? Some weird stuff going down. <laughs> Is there not enough going on in the city? You got to get an alligator. Officers raided the home about 9.40 p.m. in the 4,000 block of North Troy Street and found the three-foot gator along with the guns and drugs, Chicago police said. Uh, let's see. As I mentioned, this is the third alligator story in the last month. The first, obviously, being Chance the Snapper. Mm, remember, what was I forgot the dude's name already. Oh my who alligator got, Rob? No, that's Bob. Uh. No, Rob was the one that found it. Bob uh, was the guy who couldn't find it. Oh, that's right. But only we called him Alligator Rob. Uh, what's his? What was his real name? He's from Florida. I forgot the guy's name already. Man, a fame is fleeting. That's for certain. Oh man, uh, Alligator Bob. Jarofsky forgetting things. <laughs> Yep, just By a the way, normal can I, Tuesday. Can I just say something? I just thought about this about uh, thinking of things I forgot. I want to say I'm. I think we should expand Lollapalooza. All right. I think we should make it a uh, a year round thing. <laughs> a little. We were on the alligator story. Go ahead. The, the streets were empty. Did you notice this <laughs> yeah. on Thursday? And I mean on Friday and Saturday, nobody was out. I'm like, oh my god. You know, the streets are empty. I'm zipping around here and there. There's. It's like was like driving in the country, and then it hit me. Bing. Everybody's at uh, Lollapalooza. All the millennials, they went riding their bikes on... Uh, no scooters. No scooters. Oh, my God. No sc- I saw the worst scooter person the other day, D. It was a woman, and she had no idea what she's doing. And she's making like a left-hand turn. My God, help us all. <laughs> Wobbly back and forth. Ugh. Anyway, uh, yeah, let's expand Lollapalooza. Mayor Lightfoot, if you're listening, I know you are, uh, put a, put down the Neil Diamond record and expand the Lollapalooza. Year-round Lollapalooza. Where did that come from? Uh, Lori Lightfoot, Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond, there's a Neil Diamond song in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and oh. that's just got me thinking about Neil Diamond. Hmm. Very interesting. By the way, how was that lady on the scooter? Is she okay? <laughs> I hope she looks with the worst scooter. <laughs> She's like wobbling. As she does this left-hand turn in the traffic. I'm like, oh my God, lady. So the first story was Chance the Snapper, the mm. alligator who was dropped into the Humboldt Park Lagoon mm-hmm. and wasn't caught for like two weeks. A few weeks later, two brothers posted a video to Facebook claiming to have found a second alligator <laughs> in the lagoon. And did they, they got in trouble, didn't they? Yeah, they were arrested after police began to question the legitimacy of their 
fined, but were released from custody <laughs> oh, pending they were further re- investigation. Okay, so they've not been charged with anything. No, no, just idiots, mm-hmm. I guess. A spokesman for the police department said officers were conducting a search warrant at the home, uh, but declined to say what the warrant was for. The alligator was turned over to animal control. Police said no one is in custody as North our area North detectives investigate. So we have to ask the question. <laughs> Was that the person who put the the first alligator in the lagoon? It could be. That's the question? It could be. Yeah, yeah, that is the question. I don't know, man. See, this is something I would never in a million years be remotely interested in owning an alligator. So I'm not like feeling <laughs> either, this. Huh? You know, yeah. So I'm not really feeling this trend of owning alligator. I knew a guy many years ago who had a snake collection. He was really loved his snakes. It's kind of weird and eerie and you know, like a little too much. Uh, I didn't like to go yeah. to his house because the snake thing wasn't working it, for yeah. me. People who own snakes and they're really into the snake eating like a mouse. Like, yeah. All right, I don't well, want to see that. Yeah, watch my snake <laughs> like, eat no. this mouse. Uh, what, there was just a movie where a guy was put in the back seat of a car with a snake. What was that movie? It was a comedy, I want to say. Anyway, um, so I'm not really feeling this alligator thing and um, really hoping this trend does not pick up. You know, it doesn't have legs. Well, it uh, seems to um, be picking up and, and they having all, legs. And then people just dump them in the Humble Park Lagoon. Uh, yeah, I'm not feeling this one at all. Yeah, so... All right. Crack down, please. So there you go. Just some local stories going on. And now you'll have an answer the next time someone asks you, hey, what else is news? Don't go anywhere. More Ben Jarofsky show to come. Our Chicago Reader colleague, Maya duke Masava has walked in. Okay, well, she's leaving. No, hold on. <laughs> Wait, when I say oh, yeah. she's a huge snake fan and she got mad. She's here. Now she's gone. <laughs> I hope she'll be back. Hopefully she'll be back. And we'll be back, too. It's the Ben Jarofsky show live from the Chicago Sun-Times. <laughs> You are no longer uh, mayor of Chicago. You're not holding public office right now, so you don't have to watch what you say. Not that you ever did that I know, much. I was going to say, yeah. yeah, that was not really... That, I don't think you have to worry about that. But now you're, you can prepare to be Rombo again. The Neutron Rom. Just blow up the place. <laughs> Where's Waldo? Today's Ben Jarofsky Show was brought to you in part by Chicago Architecture Center. Get to know your city on one of Chicago Architecture Center's 65 walking tours. Hear the unforgettable secrets and stories behind Chicago architecture from our expert docents. Book your tour at architecture.org slash tours. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm actually on a tour right now. Oh, wow. Look at that building. Did you know that 40% of the people in Illinois opt to be cremated? Well, it's true. And Chicagoland Cremation Options honors their wishes by providing cremation services directly to the general public. Chicagoland Cremation Options provides an affordable, ethical, and easy cremation arrangement, whether in person or online. Save thousands and streamline the process by going directly to Chicagoland Cremation Options. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Here's how you reach them. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time. Chicago LandCremationOptions.com. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by the Northwestern Summer Writers Conference. Now in its 15th year, the three-day conference held in Chicago features a diverse array of workshops, speakers, discussions, and readings. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu slash writers. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. 
arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. And for the record, I love puppies. Hey, everybody, what you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, E, L, P, I, A, N, I, S, T, dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. Hey, playing now at Steppenwolf Theater, the world premiere of Ms. Black for President. It's inspired by the true, that's true as in it really happened, T-R-U-E story of Joan Jett Black, America's first drag queen presidential candidate. You know who created it, D? No. It was created by Tony nominee Tina Landau. Oh. And you know who else created it? No. Oscar winner Terrell Alvin McCraney. You know him, Moonlight. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. For tickets, visit Steppenwolf.org. That's Steppenwolf, like the rock group from the 60s, Hang tight, millennials. <laughs> Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Yes, indeed. The good news is Maya has returned. She was here. She was gone. She came back. She's got water. She's revved up. She's ready to go. Uh, welcome back, Maya. Uh-oh. <laughs> it, uh... Hold on, it's, we're having technical issues. Hold oh, on. Oh. oh, wait. Oh, here we go. I oh, fixed it. Good? it yeah. Oh, All it was right. Maya's fault. It wasn't Dr. <laughs> D's fault. Uh, so, Maya, you were the one who broke the news to me, or maybe you, you were the first person I talked about it. So let's uh, let's start talking about Toni Morrison, the great uh, novelist, or the great writer. She passed away, what was it? Uh, last night. Last night, yeah. Yeah, yeah I just learned when you, uh, when you called me earlier. I, I, I just saw the news. Um, it's really... Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm feeling very kind of affected by that news. Um, I suppose you know, at 88 years old, you sort of come to expect that something like that will happen to people in the world who get up, you know, get up in that age range. But um, I just think that it's a really a tremendous loss to our society and our culture. Um, she's one of my favorite writers of all time. I mean, reading her books made me love reading, made me like love American literature. So, um, 
yeah, I'm just feeling all kinds of feelings. How'd um, you find your way to Toni Morrison? Uh, in high school, actually, we had uh, this American history class, which the teacher allowed us to pick whatever books we wanted to write like monthly book reports about. Um, he didn't set a lot of parameters, but he wanted us to, um, I, I mean, the parameters may have been that they needed to be American writers, but we got to choose. Um, I'd never read Toni Morrison for any classes as far as I could recall, but I remember um, when this opportunity came up, I picked Beloved and it was just like, unlike anything I'd ever read. Um, How old were you? Uh, I guess I was probably 15 or pretty, 16. Pretty 16 precocious maybe. kid. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it, it was a, it was such, a, I'd never read a book like that before that, that really had um, such a, I mean, there was a lot about it I didn't understand at the time, of course, but, but it just had such a, a such an, such, like it, the feelings were, embodied in characters in a way that I'd never experienced before. I mean, up until then, my kind of literary world, it revolved around like, the, you know, I don't know, like fantasy genre, basically. I mean, I read young adult fiction. I read books that really take you into like kind of magical places or different kinds of worlds in which you, you sort of escapism. But this was a, this was a book that had, um, these elements of like alt like alternative universes and realities this sort of like witchy kind of magical aspect to it but but it was rooted in not not in a in an escapist kind of vision but in in confronting like really really hard realities about the world so um yeah, I just, um, I was incredibly moved. I think around that time, I also read The Bluest Eye, which was Toni Morrison's first novel, and uh, which also had like just a, a tremendous impact on me. I went to, um, all, all through my kind of childhood in the United States, I went to schools uh, where they were predominantly white and had um, sort of like, I would say white, lower income type of environments. And so I never, I wouldn't, I didn't grow up going to school with a lot of, um, with a lot of black kids. And then when I got into high school, our school had a lot of black students, but they were completely segregated within the school. So like white kids tended to be in like, you know, honors and AP classes and whatever. And black kids were segregated in the like, quote unquote, like traditional track or whatever. I mean, looking back on it, I, you know, I, I know that this, this wasn't just an accident. Um, so the, so I just remember reading the bluest eye. It was probably like my first exposure to something written from the perspective of, of, of a young black person. Um, and it also had just like a, a just a tremendous, tremendous, uh, emotional impact on me. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I just think, I just think that her work was so, um, important for this country, uh, because it dealt with legacies of, or deals with legacies of slavery and white supremacy and, um, you know, intergenerational trauma and, uh, kind of violent, hyper-masculine culture that we live in. Um, and it, it, 
it sets that in the context of like what 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 a life can be like mm-hmm. when this when like this is the context in which um which you inherit when you're born. I mean, all of her books tend to follow people over long stretches of time in their various life experiences. And um, a lot of it is, a lot of the characters are are often dealing with like tremendous emotional weights that it takes them a very, very long time to kind of untangle and understand and unpack. So um, yeah, I just find, I find her work to be so truthful and, um, so so beautiful like the way she related the way she engaged with language was so beautiful and um i just think that uh everybody should be reading tony morrison yeah no i gotta give a little shout out to oprah not that she needs it but oprah was the one in many ways uh who opened so many people's minds to to tony morrison when she made beloved i think it was beloved her book of the month club or mm-hmm. I she had Tony Morrison on her show mm-hmm. and sales of Tony Morrison books went up, you know, skyrocket because Tony Morrison's a very difficult writer to read. Uh, you think so? Yes, absolutely. Um, Just because of the emotional weight of the work or because of the way she, of the language there, there's, well, the, the plots are not her everything. Um, for, so, so like when you read a newspaper article, uh, a sentence is exactly well, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> when you're reading, uh, Toni Morrison is is sort of like the middle ground between poetry uh, and literature, between uh, poetry and it's well, it's one step beyond what you read in a newspaper. So there's a metaphorical quality to it. You're not quite sure what's exactly going on. You got to think about it. You got to dwell on it. Uh, it's not literal. And uh, and in many cases, these are ghost stories. People are you yeah. think they're dead and then they're alive and you're like, wait a minute, I thought this person was dead, huh? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, it's not if you if it's if you're a very concrete minded person, I, th- <laughs> I I suppose it would be a very got, like kind a of blockhead, diff- like difficult to 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 sort of. Uh, wrap your mind around some of the stuff it's not it's not super literal yeah. yeah and so uh so we don't have to like diminish people by saying that it's just like you have to open up your mind a little bit to something that's a little different that's something you're not used to you have to uh it, at the first you know maybe it's challenging and you're put off you got to come back at it the next Yo, day I, what i said concrete minded i don't mean like a block no, no 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 <laughs> I, I mean just like if you think about things in a very concrete manner yeah. usually day to day if you're think if, you, if you're like in a literal frame of mind literal. most of the time yeah uh, and uh, so in that regards, uh, it's it's complicated and it's different. Uh, and then the subject matter is really trying. You know, it's she's talking about slavery. She's talking about racism. Mm. And uh, so she's deep. Uh, and uh, Oprah opened her up to the multitudes and she became a best-selling author. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize how important Oprah was to her sort of becoming a a much more popularly read writer. I mean, I I feel like, uh, I guess maybe just because of my age, but I feel like Toni Morrison has always, always been in the air. Like it's just, she's just, she's just like one of the greats. Um, So, but I do think that it's interesting that in my high school experience, it wasn't, she wasn't assigned reading. Like, I don't know how I got the idea to read her on my own, but like there was, there, there was definitely, she, she wasn't part of the canon in like the literature classes I took in high school. I know that's not probably true for all high schools, but in general, I just, I feel like this, uh, you know, it's as important to read Toni Morrison as, I don't know, 
whatever the scarlet letter or whatever else they make you read in high school you know grapes of wrath jesus uh, (laughs) read beloved rather than grapes of wrath if you're gonna read a big thick book about you know life in america uh grapes of wrath is thicker than beloved uh by a little bit maybe um or longer anyway more pages uh in grapes of wrath anyway tony morrison i had i was telling you in the phone i had uh, i reached out to tony morrison once many years ago i was writing a story before she became a writer before or before I should meant, I put it this way, before her fiction was published and she can make a living writing, she made a living as an editor. Mm-hmm. And I think she was the editor of Quote Me at Random House. Yeah, she was. And, uh, and so at, one of her projects was a book called The Greatest, which is Muhammad Ali's autobiography. And when I was a kid, I was utterly obsessed with Muhammad Ali. And I, own, I still have my copy of The Greatest. It was uh, co-written with a Chicago writer named Richard Durham. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, in, that, in that book, Muhammad Ali tells a story uh, about how he when he won the gold medal in 1960 at the Rome Olympics uh, for boxing mm-hmm. and when he came home to Louisville uh, he got into a fight with some white racist bike uh, motorcyclists I'm not making this up this is in his book he, this is Muhammad Ali talking and as an act of protest he took the medal, the gold medal that he had won, and threw it in the Ohio River mm-hmm. because he didn't want it anymore. It represented racism. He didn't want the gold medal anymore. Uh, in 1996, there, uh, Muhammad Ali uh, was, of course, at that stage. He was not completely, uh, his Parkinson's wasn't completely advanced that he couldn't talk, uh, but communication was diff- difficult for him. And it, America's attitude toward Muhammad Ali had changed so much that at the 1996 Olympics, the United States gave him a new gold medal. He was the one who, I don't know if you were around for this, you're, you're so young, but he lit the Olympic flame. Mm-hmm. He was the last person mm-hmm. who limped, lit the flame and they gave him a, a substitute medal. Mm-hmm. And Bob Costas went on the, radio, the TV and said, uh, there's an apocryphal story that says he threw the gold medal into the Ohio River, but in fact, uh, he lost the medal. Mm. And that really irritated me. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm a, you know, I'm an obsessive person yeah. anyway, Maya. I'm like, it's not apocryphal. He told it. Apocryphal means we don't know the origin. He told it. It's in his book, yeah. The Greatest by Muhammad Ali with Richard Durham. So then I began this investigation, this long, and one of the things I did was I reached out to Toni Morrison. Um, she was the editor of the book and I was going to, I wanted to ask her and I remember getting her assistant. And Toni Morrison, like when she, the way she worked, according to the assistant, like she would s- shut herself off from everything. Much the way you are, Maya, when you're working on a big story. Don't yeah. bother me. And uh, and so she, she, I said, well, here's what I want to know. And I funneled to her. And um, uh, when I called back, the assistant said, no, she doesn't want to. <laughs> talk about this listen she had more important things to do than deal with your uh, tracking obsession. down of whether wh- whether or not this story was true <laughs> i don't know what to read into that like the fact I, I i guess it was she has far more important things uh to do but anyway that story is still uh you know that's what for what it's worth I read every biography that comes out about Muhammad Ali to see how they're going to deal with that. He has never once publicly said that that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. I personally believe it's a made-up story, but he's never once said it is a made-up so story. So you don't think he threw it in the river? No, I don't believe he threw it. In, I, if, I, uh, whether he made it up or didn't make it up to me is a secondary importance. He said it, he wrote it, 
he approved the writing and he never deviated from it. And furthermore, in follow-up books that he's written with his uh, follow-up book he wrote with his daughter, he mm-hmm. repeated the story. Mm-hmm. So it's a story he wanted told. So whether it happened or not is almost irrelevant to me. What I find more irritating is so many people saying it didn't happen and he made it well, up but without is, any proof. This is a great little uh, kind of loop back to Toni Morrison, who who very much, I mean, many of the things that happen in her book, you're never sure if they actually happen. But it's the, what's important is that people believe that they happen and they had a certain emotional experience with what was the perceived event. Um, and there's... Uh, yeah, like the like the like the valence of the thing is not about whether it actually ha- whether or not it actually happened. It's about the meaning you attach to the idea of it happening. So, um, yeah, I feel like a lot of people, a lot of characters in her books, grapple with that. Like you know, grapple, and you as the reader are are constantly you know teetering between like what's reality and what isn't, uh, what you know what happened or what's imagined. So. Um, yeah, it's 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 really it's it's it, you know much of her life's work I think was devoted to kind of your relationship with memory and um, memory that's intergenerational and not you know directly experienced by one person but carried nevertheless. So yeah, um, this whole thing with Muhammad Ali, Ali fits right in. Yeah, it and does. I mean it, it, I I do not believe this is the case, but we can imagine that perhaps she didn't want to engage with you, not because you're a nobody from a world in which that, which she had no interest in engaging with, <laughs> but because, but because it was not important what happened concretely, Absolutely. but rather to just leave it as it is remembered. Yeah. And, but what really irritated me was <laughs> that so many people acted as though, um, like she knew it was made up. You know what I'm saying? She never commented. You think uh, people, oh, oh, I didn't When I was that, researching yeah. the story, mm-hmm. people, oh, you know, Toni Morrison says it was made up. I'm like, really? So that's why I reached out to mm-hmm. her. You know, yeah. I, I, you know, and uh, so when I hear you, I'm thinking right now, uh, she, she, you know, she may have had a role in shaping that story. She was the editor. She yeah. was working with Muhammad Ali and Richard Durham, who's a, a great Chicago writer, as I said, uh, in his own right. So she may have had a role in uh, writing that story. Uh, uh, but uh, no, the, her not returning, uh, responding to me is the least significant part of the story. The most yeah. important part of the story, in my humble opinion, is how uh, our country is continually trying to use Muhammad Ali for objectives that he never signed on to and uh, to turn his story into a parable uh, that bears no relationship to the life he was leading and the things he was saying with his own mouth when he could talk back in the day. So right. anyway, that's, uh, and Tony Moore's had a very small role in that as the editor of his book. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, it's, um, you know, you, you'd asked me on the phone before I came if, you know, to, to talk about, um, the, the violence over this weekend. And I was also thinking about that in the context of this, you know, news about Toni Morrison. But I think that, um, it's just so much, there's so much to be, uh, unpacked in the way that, and people are saying this much better than, than I could right now but you know the 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 knee-jerk 
right-wing response to these mass shootings as being like expressions of mental health problems rather than a politicized white supremacist violence. Um, and I think that actually Toni Morrison's books do a really good job of dis kind of showing the way that white supremacy and white supremacist violence against black people lives in and impacts people in a way that's quite different from um, the violence and and kind of hurtful behavior that comes from unaddressed trauma or mental health issues of one sort or another. So the it's sort of irrelevant what the you know mental state of the person who decided to like publish this manifesto and then go kill a bunch of people like it, it sort of doesn't matter if they're like in a kind of fragile mental state where they become susceptible to perpetuating this kind of violence like this person th these people are politicized they have a certain kind of worldview like we're not talking about the mental states of the 9-11 hijackers you know that is not seen as anything but uh, an act of politicized violence and we don't talk about mental health when it comes to uh you know gun violence in chicago for example which you know what people especially i mean rom loved to do this is talk about you know the moral failings of the communities from which these kids come from that, that do this shooting uh these the kids and young people and it's like those folks are living at the at the at the at the spear point of all of the structural and political violence in our society they are they are like at the bottom of the spear and the violence that happens within communities uh and domestic violence that happens is like the final expression of these structural issues the people like these you know like people who commit acts of terrorism on a scale of these shootings like this this is like so much farther from the food chain like it, it's 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 the politics that matter at that point it's it's these it's these ideologies that motivate people that encourage this kind of thing so um you know to make sense of these of these violence acts that you know we're seeing now so frequently i feel like it might not be a bad idea for folks to turn to Joni Morrison either. Yeah. Uh, well, it, you, you raised so many different points there. I don't, yeah, I don't even know what I mean, I'm saying. No, but you, <laughs> I, I was following you and you were like in a great riff and you were ra and you raised a lot of points. You can break them out a bit by bit. There was uh, an article by a, a law enforcement official. Uh, I forget where I read it, who was um, worked for the FBI uh, throughout the early part of the century and tracking um, uh, Islamic terror and terror by people of who say they want they're on behalf of uh, Muslims mm -hmm. uh, and he was doing he was contract he was uh, pointing out the parallels between the uh, the violence of um, gunmen who say they're they're acting on behalf of uh, white supremacy uh, the ideology that apparently drove the 
the shooter in uh, El Paso or the shooter in what was it New Zealand mm-hmm. uh, where the, and then there's these tracks that they put out and he said the, the law enforcement officer said there's some parallels but the difference is, is as you were alluding to is our country doesn't take uh, one domestic uh, viol- uh, terrorism act seriously as an act of a group of people who want to cause mass destruction because of their political ideologies but they take the other one the, the Islamic one seriously mm-hmm. and um, so you can't and he went through and he he pointed out all the different rules and regulations that don't uh, adhere to the white supremacist terrorist and uh, then you get to Donald Trump who uh, will give like it forced almost like they force him in front of a teleprompter to read this little can response mm-hmm. uh, at when it's really bad and then what i d i don't know if he's has has donald trump weighed in today i've been paying any attention to donald trump today uh i've been in a free to trump zone but it's for better all for he, your mental health it's better for me but he may have already deviated from the script mm-hmm. i don't know but he will you know you, you know, know at this. the next rally at yeah. the next rally or yeah. the next tweet or yeah. he'll start attacking black people individual who picked this like individual black people that he's going to target mm-hmm. uh as his scapegoat yeah. and to fire people up and f- totally forget you know whatever he said from the teleprompter the day before yeah uh and uh so yeah that's that and then there's the mental health issue you're absolutely correct rom closed mental health clinics in the city of chicago he went the exact opposite direction uh and and yeah, I said, well, it's bigger than me. It's a moral failing on your part. I can't do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, it. I just keep thinking back to like the way he, that I would like hear him talk about gun violence issues and that stupid podcast he had. And it was all like, he was just so preoccupied whenever he spoke, especially with like faith leaders of various stripes that he had on there. He was so preoccupied with like, why isn't there more moral outrage? And even, you know, he had... um Cardinal Supich on there, which, you know, <laughs> like, I'm sure that there's like a, a hundred Catholic people rolling their eyes right now that that Cardinal Supich is supposed to be the representative of some kind of like, uh, you know, holistic, just vision for the world. But Supich talked on the podcast about just having compassion for shooters to, you know, however, whatever, however that may or may not translate in the way he sort of leads the politics of the church in Chicago. But in general, that's, he expressed that kind of, uh, I would say like a, a rather magnanimous kind of vision about like, okay, like fundamentally these are hurt people who are doing this and we need to be dealing with that. And Rom was just like, but what about the moral outrage? Like, where do we draw the, like, you know, as if like under uh, talking about people that, that, that do the shooting with compassion means that you're absolving them of any responsibility. Um, he like wasn't willing to go in that direction of discussion at all. When we're talking about people in the streets engaging in violence a lot of them being very young people who are like the poorest people in our society, who are the most disadvantaged in every way, who have myriad mental health needs, physical health problems, you know, living in environments where, you know, there's just no options at all. Um, You know, and then you have people that are engaging in this terrorism, you know, like this weekend and 
the first thing we're supposed to think about is there is their mental health problems, you know? Um, it's just, it's all, it's, it's all, it's all some kind of double speak. It's mm -hmm. all messed up. It's all like the messaging around it is all fucked up. It's, it's double speak. You're absolutely right. And the whole way mental health is used as a political, uh, a game is, uh, is very depressing uh, because you're right. Uh, Most mentally ill people or people who struggle with mental illness are not violent at all. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and uh, yeah, absolutely. And so to say, oh, it's mental health. Uh, oh yeah, he's mentally ill, Donald Trump. Let's move on. Let's turn the page. Doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> I mean, just like it's... Oh, well, he's mentally ill. All right, let's go on. Well, what about your program uh, to treat people with mental illness? What about expanding that? You know what I'm saying? What about a, a more therapists or clinics or? Yeah, I mean, people people who work in the field of like suicide prevention and, and kind of deal with, with the suicide issue in our society, the first thing they talk about is to decrease suicide. You need to make it harder for people to have access to means of doing it. The number, the biggest thing that raises someone's risk factors for actually committing suicide is having a gun in their house. Like having the means to do it mm -hmm. easily accessible, the, the, to have deadly means around when somebody's going through some kind of problem, having the, having access to the means is like the number one thing yeah. that's like the, that the easiest thing to limit and the thing that puts people most at risk for actually going through with it. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, like that, if, if, if the conversation immediately goes to the mental health issue, then like the first response needs to be to get these guns off the streets, to get these guns out of people's hands. So you know, uh, all right. but so, there's nothing, I mean, look, there's nothing I can say about this that hasn't already been said. There's, you know, at this point, I don't know what else you could possibly say. All right. Then before I get really depressed with this conversation, <laughs> there's nothing we could do about some of the most important issues. I do believe, uh, I do believe gun control is, um, I shouldn't say easy, but I believe there's absolute measures that we could take, but we won't take because, um, of our, like this, an obsession that a, a large segment of our population has with the right to have a gun, which uh, is is a political force in this country, Maya, and you know this, uh, that will block any kind of meaningful uh, legislation that will just curb or regulate the, yeah. the number of guns we have. And, um, uh, you know, and I think I come back to it at times like this, the, how uh, Alex Jones, who has an enormous audience that listens to him, his response to the shooting of, ch of children in a Connecticut school in 2012 uh, was to say it was made up. That was his response, that it's part of conspiracy. A anything to undercut a movement that might lead to more regulation. Yeah, well, I mean, any, any, it, all of it, the, this country's obsession with, with gun ownership has everything to do with like a kind of fear that permeates this culture. And if and a well-founded fear, maybe on some level, by in in a, in a in a society that's built on like white settler colonialism, in which people like people came over here and just took land that didn't belong to them, and then enslaved a bunch of people to 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 perform labor for free to enrich themselves. Like, yeah, those people are fucking scared. Cause on, you know, like it's, and, 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 and this is like a fear that you, is cultivated and passed on from generation to generation. Like if you, if you are representative of, of, of a group of people 
that perpetuated all this violence has gotten away with it for hundreds of years. Like maybe there's some kind of like existential fear that just, you know, never goes away that like on some level you're, you're just worried that somebody's going to come after you and you imagine that it's going to be the people that you fucked over for hundreds of years. But, um, you know, lots of societies are built on all kinds of injustice and there's lots of traumas that go on. And the, the truth is that the, in the rest of the world, people don't like, continually refresh their relationship with guns and the very kind of basis of how they relate to their government and stuff like this is it's this this is like a unique thing in this country and it's it's absolutely crazy like people don't need to live this way people people they're they're just you know that american prosperity is not built on our relationship to gun ownership all right. So in the realm of more positive news, uh, moving on, uh, you haven't been in the studio in a while. Let's uh, your thoughts on the recent uh, the debates, the state of the, the Democratic oh, primary. Yeah. Hope, yeah. hope must bring spring <laughs> alive. Listen, I'm still, you know, ever more fascinated by Marianne Williamson. I'm really convinced that she's going to go way further than any, anybody expects just because like people just think that she's absolutely nuts. And this is exactly what folks were saying about Donald Trump. That's right. Uh, so I'm just, I'm like dying to see how far this lady gets because the Alex Jones, like the spectrum of people, like I've said before, and this again, uh, big shout out to the eating for free podcast for putting this idea in my head. But like the, the idea that the like Alex Jones people who are like part of the base of Trump supporters, it's like the same kind of people who are like into like crystals and all kinds of magical thinking that are part of Marianne Williamson's brand. So, so, you know, all I'm saying is it's the same kind of people and the country is full of them. So I think she's, she might go much farther than we imagine. Uh, if I'm wrong, don't go after me, but I'm just saying I'm, I will not be surprised. Uh, but I was watching, yeah, I was watching the debates, um, kind of with half an eye because I was in the process of moving. Um, but, um, you know, the thing that's most annoying is just that afterwards people are like nonstop talking about how g- powerful of a performance Joe Biden gave. And I guess it's what compared to what the last the last time, like maybe it was better, but I don't know. I don't know. Like this, it, it just he's not coming off well, like he's not speaking well. And I keep thinking, too, about how you said you know, brought up this issue of electability and how, you know, there's lots of people who really like Joe Biden in this country and we need someone to like, uh, you know, to beat Trump essentially. And I just don't like, there's just so much baggage with him. And I feel like the media, like the TV news media is so obsessed with trying to like redeem him in some way. And even, you know, even like public radio, the way I hear people talk about it on NPR, like the way that people are trying to make sure that they're talking about Joe Biden and saying something positive about him. Like, I'm just like, were you watching this? This is, this is like, the, what a piss poor performance from somebody who spent decades on the public stage, public speaking, you know, giving extemporaneous remarks, debating other politicians, like this person is on the decline. This And, and he's constantly in a position to have to defend his record, which is so full of like all these like sh- kind of like shady problematic things. Yeah. So yeah, like the name recognition that is there and all of that. But so that's like a 
big thing that, you know, he has a big brand and it would be very hard to build up someone else's brand to that degree. But I just, you know, I'm just like, I don't know. It just feels like watching a sinking ship. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I don't know why you'd say even uh, NPR or public, I don't know why they'd be exempt from the, the media's uh, general attitude, but uh, um, the Joe Biden phenomenon uh, in my estimation is uh, number one, um, so many voters, so many voters act like uh, pundits. So, so many voters, you know, they're like, they've been listening to us for so long. Uh, they, they, they'd want to be a pundit, you know what I mean? So they, they want to like, well, who could win the swing vote of Michigan? You know what I mean? Do you, is that really how people talk? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, a lot of yeah. I talked to a lot. Of, I talk about one of my okay, many obsessions, well, <laughs> uh, like, which I share with you from time to time. I uh, Muhammad Ali is just one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, uh, so I'm always asking voters, you know, like what's on your mind. I'm always asking people that on the show and life and everything. And um, electability is what pops to people's minds. And so it's almost like they remove themselves from the equation. Yeah, it's like, who are you voting yeah, for? Exactly. Like, who do you want to vote for? And they're more concerned about some swing voter. Yeah, some yeah. idea of some person yeah. out there. That who may or may not vote? exist. Yeah. I have this conversation all the time with lots of different people yeah. in many yeah, different yeah. realms. And they'll always go, well, it's almost like, you don't know how people are, are in the real world. And in the real the, tell me this, you know, in the real world, like, and they'll fill in the blank. So they need Biden. They're open to Biden. So I'm with Biden because they're with Biden. (laughs) Okay. I always advocate people in a primary, you should vote who you want to vote for. Yeah. Who's the most, who expresses the, uh, close to you and your heart and soul of where you want the country to go. Right. Okay. So, uh, I can tell you right now, Joe Biden doesn't come close for me. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, but if I'm thinking about what somebody in Michigan might vote for in a swing district, uh, maybe I can talk myself into voting uh, for Joe Biden. Right. So this is I, I'm just looking up this stat because um, I was I was um, tweeting about this recently because the Daily, uh, the New York Times uh, podcast did this whole um episode about wisconsin and what it's what kind of democrat could win wisconsin i don't remember if i talked about it the last time i came on the show or not so my apologies if i did i don't think so though um basically that this whole entire podcast was dedicated to you know a discussion of the wisconsin swing voters and where like where where they stand and wh- where how we're, how people are going to get flipped how people who voted for Trump are going to get flipped. But what infuriated me about this was that the <laughs> there was something like 60% turnout in Wisconsin in 2016, which was the lowest in like 20 years. Like very bad voter turnout. And rather than talking about how do you get more people out to vote and motivate people who aren't into Trump, but you know, maybe feel like there's not much of a choice. Like, how do you get those people out and voting? Because then you don't have to think about how do you flip the minds of people who voted for Trump? Like those people, like why waste the time and energy imagining how you can change those imagined people's minds Mm -hmm. rather than focus on the real issue, which is that there needs to be more turnout. Like, and Joe Biden, I just don't see like how is he going to turn people out? He's got he appeals only to people who already religiously vote. Who else cares about Joe Biden? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, Joe Biden will not be an agent for uh, turnout. If there is an agent for turnout uh, in the Demo- in the upcoming uh, election uh, between Joe Biden, let's say it's Joe Biden and Donald Trump, it'll be uh, antipathy toward Donald Trump. Yeah. It won't be love for Joe Biden or uh, appreciation for what he his worldview is. Right. Uh, I, th- I think that is clear. And uh, so, that- yeah, I mean, from that perspective, maybe there is a way that the that the Biden campaign could like run some sort of masterfully, masterfully kind of like planned and executed media uh, strategy that uh, would really capture people's hearts and minds and get them out there and fill them with a sense of like, you know, moral righteousness by going out to vote against Trump and for Joe Biden. But I, I don't know. That'll be the strategy. He's got such, he's got so much baggage. So a campaign like that will have to be prepared to constantly, constantly have to like, you know, deal with all of this shit from his past, which he's like spending the entire debate having to deal with. Yeah. And no, that whole debate will be ignore the past, hate Trump. That will be the debate. That will be the campaign. And if you're, and if the, and if the Democrats, if the real thing that would is necessary is is a message that's like, we, we are better than this. Yeah. How can you put Joe Biden's face as a represent as a representation of that when the guy like opposed busing and has all this like sh- you know the, the, this like cozy history with these white supremacists from the south? Like you're gonna have a campaign that says we are our country is better than Donald Trump, but then the face of that is a guy who's like you know, just like has his hands dirty yeah. with all this, with all this unsavory stuff. That's, that doesn't seem like a good Well, that's plan. what they call a mixed message. Uh, <laughs> all right, Maya, very good. And uh, uh, you got me fired up now. We're ending on there a positive go. notion. Yeah, uh, uh, but go read Toni Morrison still, everybody. Go read Toni Morrison. Yeah. All right, very good. My next guest is in the studio. We're going to bring her on when we return. Today's Ben Jaromsky show was brought to you in part by Chicago Architecture Center. Discover the breadth and majesty of Chicago's architecture on a Chicago Architecture Center bus tour. From bungalows to Bauhaus, our expert docents will share the fascinating stories behind our city's architecture. Book your tour at architecture.org slash tours. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm actually on a bus tour right now. Oh my, look at that wonderful piece of architecture. Get a special discount for Illinois residents from July 15th to August 15th. All Illinois residents get 50% off select walking tours. Visit architecture.org slash IL dash resident. It's almost football season, which means that the best sports reporters in Chicago want to offer you. Yeah, you are listener an exclusive deal on unlimited digital access to all of the stories you love. Do not miss a game this season. Get all the big plays, scores, and stories from the Chicago Sun-Times for a limited time only. You can lock in our lowest rate yet, only $29.99 for a full year of all the news and sports you need to know. Stay up to date on breaking stories. Get the deep dives and investigations from Sun-Times reporters and go deep inside City Hall with best-in-class political reporting and, of course, cheer for the big games with the best sports team in the city. $29.99 for a full year of unlimited access. I looked online and checked. It's true. You cannot do better than that. Take advantage of this exclusive deal now at suntimes.com forward slash Ben. We've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. I do not believe you are a racist, but I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful. 
to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. You also worked with them to oppose busing. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show is just moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions once again for jumping on board and helping bring back our program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. A giant thank you to those unions for jumping on board and bringing back our program. And of course, today's show is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor, Hour number two. Let's go. It is Tuesday, August 6th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. this hour of the program we welcome margie fritz birch of the edgewater historical society and it's the return of david glowatz aka mr bike and now your host chicago reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Yes, indeed. Margie Fritz Birch is in the studio. She came bringing me a, a steak dinner, D. I, I bet <laughs> for the first time. She already lost a bet to me. There you was no bet. There was no bet. <laughs> she, she already ducking and dodging the bet, D. We'll tell you all about it. Where's my steak dinner, Margie Fritz Birch? Anyway, uh, uh, before we bring her on, what you got from me, young man? Uh, we got some updates here. We'll do one local, one national. Pick which one you want first, Ben, local or national? Uh, uh, go national. All right. Our national update here. It's involving Donald Trump, believe it or not. The Trump campaign and the Republican Party today has sued California oh, yeah. over a new law requiring presidential candidates to release their tax returns <sighs> mm-hmm. if they want to run in the state's primary. Mm-hmm. One of the lawsuits contends California law is, quote, a naked political attack against the sitting president of the United States. Yeah, it is. It is yeah. that. I agree with that. Yeah, it is. And you got to release your taxes, Donnie. Yeah. If you release your taxes, the attack ends. Boom. You get to run. Let me tell you this. Uh, I'm, I, I was hoping that Donnie would take a different strategy. I was hoping that uh, he would just not run in the state of California. Follow me on this one, Margie Fritz Birch. Uh, Donald Trump has no chance of winning the California uh, electoral votes. He has no. Ch- I have a better chance of winning electoral votes in California than Donald Trump. Dennis would cream him, Doctor D over there, if he Damn ran right. against him. So he has no chance. And so I was hoping that Donald Trump. Is, okay. Back up. There is a law, we talked about it last week, that the California uh, Assembly passed and was signed by Gavin Newsom, who is the governor of California, that requires anybody who wants to run in a primary in the state of California, he or she has to release his or her taxes, okay? Now, Donald John Trump, as everybody knows, is the only major candidate for president in the United States who has not released his taxes. He hasn't released them because he says he doesn't want to. He says he's above that, above that custom and that ritual. So, uh, now, now, he has to decide, does he want to run in the primary in California or does he want to, uh, will he release his taxes? He's going a second route. Mr. Let's not clutter up the courts with needless lit, uh, litigation is filing a lawsuit. All right. So he is whipping out so much, Margie Fritz Birch, 
judge that he's following a lawsuit. I was, I was hoping that we'd take a, a second option, which is say, you know what? I'm not going to win California anyway. I can still be reelected without the biggest state in the union. I'm not running in California. His and ego is not going to let him do that. What's that? His, His ego, ego is so enormous. But I was hoping he would do it because it would just show what a farce the electoral college is, which to me is the real issue, one of the many issues we put up with it. And you know what's something, Martin, this is one of my pet peeves, is when people in Illinois, and it happens to people of the Democratic persuasion in Illinois. In fact, I spoke to a Democrat in California. They defend the electoral college. Well, Ben, the small states. What do you care? You don't live in a small state. I'm like, Democrats are so dumb, Margie. They're just, uh, ben. Our founding fathers, uh, they believed in the small state. What do you, founding fathers believed in slavery. You still holding to that one? Uh, the, the small states already have incredible representation in the Senate as it stands now. That is Yes, absolutely. So let's, by the way, there was an article in the tribunal this weekend. I don't know if you saw it, or maybe it was Friday. I'm losing track of the trip uh, about a movement to pull Chicago uh, out of the state of Illinois, have it become its own separate state, which would be an interesting <laughs> thing. You know, the, all these downstaters want to do it. I, I'm like, hey, listen, guys, what was the old boy's name who ran for governor? Oh, uh, uh, Marshall. Robert Marshall. Yeah, he had that idea. I'm going to take it three parts. There's going to be Chicago. He came on our show. One. And uh, if, if they do that, well, there would be uh, probably, uh, would be, it would help the Democrats. Follow me in this, Margie Fitzbirch, mm. uh, because uh, that would mean there would be two more senators from Chicago. So there'd be two Democrats. True. And probably there would be at least one, if not two, from the other portion of the, portion of the state. Hey, so God bless you down the stage. Uh, knock yourself out. Anyway, enough of that. Thanks for that. No update. collusion. <laughs> okay, thank you, Don. <laughs> All right. uh, Margie Fritz Birch, I keep talking about her Edgewater Historical Society. She's got a great story to tell. You may have re remember it from the Chicago Tribune. Uh, in uh, Last year, almost a full year has passed since the great Mary Smeach wrote a front page story about it. What a great columnist she, she is. For this. See, people say, oh, I bet all you do is attack the Tribune, and I'm defending one of their writers. How about that? She's a wonderful writer. Uh, she's a sensational writer, and um, there was a great story. Uh, Margie let me before I explain to the listeners why you owe me a steak dinner um, <laughs> uh, tell folks uh, about the exhibit uh, at the uh, Edgewater Historical Society that involves you and your mother okay uh, this is a 50th anniversary of the Chicago conspiracy trial which was a major landmark trial politically historically and legally it was actually putting um, free speech on trial Hoover, Nixon, Mitchell, they wanted these these eight guys. The, the, um, the 1968 convention was the catalyst for, for the trial. And they indicted eight, eight men um, for giving speeches in Grant Park. Um, so my mom was called as a juror. They were, she was chosen. They were sequestered for five months. Uh, my mother kept a journal, a daily journal, which I have. Um, and we kept everything for her. We kept newspaper articles magazines, books. My mom gave interviews uh, to Evergreen Magazine. She gave interviews to um, Bill Curtis later on in A&E, American Justice Series. Authors sent her books. I have all of these. I have all of our correspondences. Everything that happened within that five months I have um, on, on in the exhibit at the Edgewater Historical Society, along with the graphics of the time, Seed, uh, The Seed, which is an underground newspaper. Um, Abe Peck actually you know, helped me with a lot of that. Former editor of the seed. 
Yep. And who was a professor emeritus now at Northwestern. He's emeritus? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And he did Time a Time marches on. Yeah. <laughs> right. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe it's 50 years ago. Yeah. Uh, this is the 50th anniversary. Uh, I was in college at the time. I was 20 years old. All right, time out. I got to say this for our millennial listeners and our Zs. The Chicago conspiracy trial was a big freaking deal uh, back in 1969. In 1968, follow me in this, folks, a little history lesson for you. I'll be as brief as I can. The Democrats had a convention, their national convention in the city of Chicago, Mayor Daley, not the Mayor Daley that you all know, millennials, but his father, who was even more power than, powerful than Mayor Daley, he was sort of the governing force over this picture, was absolutely everywhere. And uh, anti-war activists came to Chicago in 1968 to protest against the war and and Hubert Humphrey, who was the uh, going to be the Democratic nominee and was the vice president of Lyndon Johnson and was a strong advocate of the war, Lyndon Johnson, of course. Uh, and there was a fight. There was a riot that broke up uh, between the police and the anti-war activists. I would say it was more of a police riot. That's my bias. As police said, out of hell with these anti It was declared a police riot by the Walker the, report. Very good. Uh, Dan Walker, former governor. And, and the thing was, too, they started um, asking for permits a year before the convention. Um, they, they called it the Festival of Life as compared to the Convention of Death, they called it. There were various groups that were involved, the MOBE, the Yippies, the um, Ralph Abernathy, uh, SDS. I mean, there were very, there were many groups that were involved in the so Black just, Panther Party. So just think about what you said. Uh, it was a riot that uh, was a police riot declared by Walker, but the United States government uh, under Richard M. Nixon decided in his infinite wisdom to charge the uh, the hippie activists who were leading the protest, the eight uh, activists. They were the ones who got charged, mm -hmm. not, not the police officers who whacked them over the heads with their billy clubs. And so that was what the trial was. It began in right. December, I believe, of 1969. September 24th, 1969. And so of all the people in the universe, your mother was selected just by random to be yep. a juror on this trial. Now, yep. was your mother political at all before this? My mom was, uh, my mom grew up in Edgewater, but then when she met my dad, uh, she, they moved to Des Plaines. That's where I grew up, but I've lived in Edgewater now since 1981. My mother was kind of, uh, she was always voted. She was always aware, but she was rather apolitical. Um, she voted for Republicans and Democrats, but at that time, the Republicans were much different than they are now. They were moderate. They were. Well, there were some moderates. I would but, say well, Nixon wasn't that much. No, no. I'm talking about like the senators, yes. not, you mm -hmm. know, um, it was a much different world then. Um, so my mom got called just out of happenstance. She had no idea. Uh, four days into the trial, they were sequestered because of a phony letter that the FBI sent to one of the jurors that they wanted rid of because she was 23 years old, threatening her from, from supposedly the Black Panther Party, which was a lie, was not true. Um, so she, she stepped down. So my mom got chosen. Uh, they kind of, my mother was always very open-minded and fair. Um, when she, this was, she was 51 years old coming from Des Plaines, And the day that she got chosen, she was reading a book by James Baldwin, which was kind of unusual at that time for a white lady from Des Plaines to be reading that book. And they kind of pegged her, you know, this is a woman we might have a chance with. And so, lo and behold, um, she was chosen. But the, the feds kept louder stay on, even though she was reading the book by Baldwin. They did. Um, it was an interesting jury, though, too. Not one of them had a college education that was somewhat planned. Um, it was 10 women and two men. Um, as the jury, as the trial went on, eight wanted them guilty on all counts. Four, my mother and three other women, wanted them innocent. So as the trial went on, um, my mother because we couldn't even see her for the first month. 
we were not even allowed to see her. Our phone calls were monitored. Our mail was opened. Um, the first time we saw her was at the Palmer House. That's where they were sequestered. And um, we were only allowed to be there for four hours with marshals all over the place. And this was all during the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. The first time she was allowed to come home was Christmas Day for four hours. That was it. With marshals. Wait, the marshals came into your house? Yep. So like you'd be sitting at the kitchen, the marshal would be there? Mm-hmm. And I remember... What were they afraid of? That you would be talking about the trial. <laughs> That's the point. At one point when they came home, this, as Marshall came home with my, uh, with my mom, and mind you, this was like three months into the trial. My parents hadn't been together in a very long time. Yeah. And they went upstairs in the bedroom to speak or talk, whatever they wanted to do. You know, They were up there about 20 minutes, and this Marshall's at the bottom of the stairs yelling at them to come downstairs. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, they can't be up there alone. I was there. I was there that day. And I, he said, they can't be up there alone. I said, whose business is of yours? They haven't been together in months. This is their house, not yours. I mean, with, this you is said what... said that to the marshal? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, look at a lip on that kid. Well, how old were you? 20. What? You wouldn't believe... We were living in a police state. It got to the point where, you know, I'm sorry. Every time I wanted to talk to my mother on the phone, there was a marshal on the other end of the line. And one time going in oh, during the trial at one point, um, Rennie Davis came. I went to school at Northern Illinois, so I was allowed to go into the trial anytime I wanted to because I was a family member. So I would go as often as I could, and over Christmas break, I had you know like a month off, so I would be there frequently. Um, right before, right when the prosecution ended their case, Rennie Davis, who was one of the um, defendants, mm-hmm. came to Northern and gave a lecture. So of course I went to the lecture, and um, and I wanted to ask him a question afterwards. Um, I, I wanted to know how he felt if the prosecution had presented a valid case. And I very stupidly stood up and said, my mother's a juror. And I was naive. I was excited that my mother was on the jury, but that was a really dumb thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, everybody turned around, looked at me. I got very nervous and I kind of mumbled out this dumb question that kind of sounded like my mother thought that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I couldn't talk to my mother if I wanted to. Yeah. And well, the, there was FBI agents there always. So the, the government cl- uh, clasped onto that and they were going to try to get her off the jury because by that point they had pegged her as a sympathetic juror. Mm-hmm. And they knew I was in college and I was involved in anti-war demonstrations, things like that. Um, so, I mean, it was a really scary time. It was right before Christmas. I was very upset. I called her that night. I said, Mom, I made a mistake. I need to talk to you. And meanwhile, the marshal's listening. Yeah, And I said, I would like the marshal to get off the line because this is between you and I. And I said, would you please get off the line? He said, no. I said, okay, I can Wait, can't. so time out. The marshals, uh, the marshals are not only on the line, but they're like, particip- it's like a three-way conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're listening to everything you're saying. I know they're listening to everything they say, but they actually engage you. Well, yeah, because I said to him, I said, would you please get off the line so I can speak to my mother? And he said, no. I said, okay, then mom, I can't tell you. I said, I made a mistake tonight, but I can't tell you what it was. And uh, so she knew something was going on, but nobody would tell her. And the next time I went down to, to the trial, to, to, to watch the trial, the marshals pulled me aside and told me that because of what I did, my mother was going to go to jail for two years and be held in contempt of court, and it was all my fault. Oh, my goodness. And I mean, I, mean, I, was, I was crying. I didn't know what to do. My really? dad was, of course, ready to kill me. Um, and I, I mean, this is what we lived through all Christmas, through the Christmas break. And, uh, and my mother, you know, she knew how upset I was. She was talking to my dad. My dad was telling her I was very upset, but couldn't tell her why. So one day when I was down at the trial, um, I got into the elevator, and behind me, Abby Hoffman and Bill Kunstler got in the elevator behind me, closed the doors. Abby Hoffman, another defendant. Another Bill defendant. Kunstler, and Bill Kunstler, the defense attorney, head mm-hmm. defense attorney. 
um, came behind me, put their arms around me and said, your mother's never going to jail. This is hearsay. They can do nothing to her. So I was like, took like a great weight off my shoulders. But from that time on, my mother had been written up in the newspapers and everybody knew, you know, that this was going on. Wait, time out. So the newspapers got a hold of the fact that you said this thing at Northern Illinois and they well, there was a, oh, yeah, there was FBI agents at, uh, at, at the lecture at Northern and they were, they were covering Rennie Davis. Did they mention your mother by name? Yes. So let's just think about this. Yes, They're they sequestered. Did. They can't talk. Uh, mm-hmm. Parents can't talk to kids. Yeah. Uh, wife can't talk to husband. But... The newspapers are free to put their names in there? They put every juror's name and address in the newspaper at that time. That is some weird yeah. stuff. It was really scary. And before I get into the trial itself, at the end of the trial, because my mother wanted them innocent on all counts, um, they, the deliberation was very difficult. My mother was having a nervous breakdown. The other eight uh, just really disliked her. They said, you have a daughter that's a hippie. You don't know what you're doing. You don't have a mind of your own. Um, you have a daughter who's a hippie. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> right. So. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I know. You know hey. Like, first of all, that's her fault. Like, she was the one who cultivated. Secondly, I bet you a couple of them had daughters who are hippies. <laughs> <laughs> no, not on that. Well, the four, the four women that wanted them innocent on all counts is one black woman, Mary Butler. Um, and uh, Shirley C. Ohm was a, a white wasp woman like my mom and then there was um frida who was a jewish woman um now uh surely had a son that would have been considered a hippie but uh not the others but the point was the other eight hated them and they hated hippies it was like you know america love it or leave it type of situation mm-hmm. and when they got into the deliberation room there was no way they were going to reach a verdict so they hung in they handed in hung jury notices hoffman refused them which was illegal the marshal came in and threatened the jurors and said we will keep you here as long as it takes for you to reach a verdict they asked for transcripts from the trial mind you a five-month trial hoffman by the way Ho- that judge hoffman, hoffman was judge hoffman, right, not judge Abby hoffman, hoffman right. two different hoffman very funny thing about the same names all yeah, throughout the trial yeah. um he wouldn't give him transcripts of the trial um i mean all of this was blatantly illegal so after four days of deliberation, there was no way they were ever going to they were ever going to agree. My mother was afraid if they handed in a hung jury notice also that they would be retried because Hoover, Nixon, and Mitchell wanted these guys. They wanted them badly. John Mitchell is John Mitchell, the okay. Attorney General. Hoover is Jagger Hoover, the head, head of the of FBI. FBI. Um, and so they reached a compromise verdict. They found them innocent on conspiracy, which was ludicrous to begin with, as Abby Hoffman always joked. Conspiracy, we couldn't even agree on lunch. <laughs> I mean, you know, and a lot of them didn't even know each other going yeah. into the trial. Um, crossing state lines to incite a riot was a bill, a, a law that was passed like towards the end of the Johnson, beginning of the Nixon administration, basically to squash the black power movement. That's basically what it was about, and the anti-war movement, but more or less to squash the, the Black Panther movement. You could cross state lines, give a speech, and they would indict you, and that's what they did to all these eight men. Um, so they found them guilty on that charge um, because my mother didn't see any other way out of it, but she was she couldn't live with herself. I, I have some quotes here from the journal. Um, she could not live with herself after that verdict. She thought she had betrayed herself. She had done something wrong. Um, she came with the, the, the day they came home, there was the, the entire street was lined with media wanting to talk to her and they agreed that they wouldn't speak to anyone. Um, she just went upstairs, she closed the door and she sobbed for like three days. Um, she was so upset. Walter Cronkite even called her that night and she wouldn't speak to Walter Cronkite. 
And even, who took the call? Despite t- my begging, I wait, did. Wait, about you took. I like did. The, I was the there. phone rings and you. Yeah. Oh, they, okay. The phone was ringing all night long. But wait, time out. Did you recognize Walter Cronkite's voice? No, he just said who he was. But we were all like a nervous wreck, and yeah. she wouldn't come to the phone. And um, so my mom. Wow. I mean, it was a life changing experience for her and for all of us. Um, but you know, she. In her journal, the thing that made me so proud of her was my mother just came out of this out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And in a matter of two or three weeks, she was able to see through what the government was doing and how unfair it was and how horrific what they were doing was. I mean, she sat through Bobby Seale, who was another one of the defendants, the only black man on the jury. He was one of the founders of the Black Panther Party. The only black man, uh, only black defendant. Defendant. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sorry, defendant. Um, He wasn't allowed, uh, Hoffman wouldn't allow him to defend himself because his lawyer, Charles Geary, was sick. Um, which again is unconstitutional. Um, so he kept creating a disturbance in the courtroom because Hoffman would not allow him to defend himself. And he called Hoffman a, a racist and a pig and various other things. The trial became very theatrical. I mean, purposefully, they made it. They made a circus out of it because it was so unfair and re- ridiculous. Well, he wouldn't stop um, obstructing the, the, the trial, so they bound and gagged him in the courtroom. They took him out, put him in a chair, and brought him back in with his mouth gagged, his arms be, bound, bound behind him. It was, I mean, it was horrible. I wasn't there that day, but my mom, it was just horrific for her. Um, she was crying in the courtroom. Um, she wrote in her journal that night. She said, oh, my God, how could this possibly be happening in our country? And, uh, you know, but the other eight that wanted them guilty saw nothing wrong with what was going on there. You know, it was, um, so Bobby Seale eventually then, Hoffman should have done this originally, just declared a mistrial, but he let this go on for like four or five days. Um, so finally he declared a mistrial and, and Bobby Seale was taken off the jury, and I mean the trial, and then it became the Chicago 7. Yeah. So it went on from there. But um, it was just, uh, I mean, I could talk about this for hours. It was just a horrific experience. The entire convention, everything, um, when they refused permits, they refused to give the protester permits knowing yeah. knowing that the, at 11 o'clock the police would march into the parks and start beating people, and that's exactly what they did. It was like a planned violence. They weren't going to kill anybody, but they were going to make a, an, obst- a, an obstacle, I mean, or make a make an example of them. And, and this took, uh, the, the convention again was 50 years ago in, uh, in 1968, and yeah. the trial was fit, uh, started in September. I'm bringing it back to, in September to continue the conversation. I could talk about the Chicago conspiracy trial, uh, Margie, forever. What do you, what can folks see if they go to the Edgewater Historical Society? Um, well, I have, um, well, it's a lot of excerpts from my mom's journal. Um, all of the newspaper articles, all of the, the interviews that she gave. She gave an interview to um, John Schultz, who was a creative writing teacher at Columbia at the time and also a journalist. He covered the trial. He wrote many books about the trial. And he also wrote for Evergreen Magazine, was an underground magazine at the time. And about three, four months after the trial, my mother finally decided she wanted to give an interview. And she and Shirley gave an interview to John Schultz. Um, and Shirley being another juror? Yeah, she was one of the other jurors. Okay. Um, and told the truth about exactly everything that had gone on, about everything Hoffman had done, not giving them transcripts, you know, threatening them, not accepting hung jury notices. I mean, there was, and as a result of that interview, two special hearings were convened, and all the jurors were called back. The jurors, um, Hoffman and the marshals, were called back and questioned. And almost to one, the other um, jurors wouldn't, uh, uh, they wouldn't, they just said, I wouldn't remember, I don't remember, I don't remember, they wouldn't answer the questions. Mm-hmm. My mother, on the other hand, um, 
just told the truth and stood up for herself and said everything that had happened and what Hoffman had done and how she felt that he was never impartial, that he hated them from day one, and that he was a totally non-impartial judge and talked about everything that had occurred. Um, as a result of that, as a result of uh, what she said and in small part what Shirley said as well, the criminal charges were overturned. And Studs Terkel was there. Studs Terkel also covered the trial, and he was there for that special hearing. And I have a letter that he wrote my mother thanking her for her bravery and her gallantry. Um, we have graphics of the time. We have a lot of the books that authors had sent my mother. A lot of the defendants wrote books and sent them to her. I also have a, a little piece of a documentary that Kunstler's daughter, daughters made about their father's career, and my mom is interviewed in that. And uh, American Justice, I don't know if you remember, they used to have a series on A&E called American Justice. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Curtis narrated it. Um, and they would do, uh, they did trials that were like, shouldn't have been, I mean, they were like illegal or bad trials. Yeah. And um, and I knew Bill Curtis because, well, my husband and I were in the film industry and the news industry for years. Um, and so I got in touch with Bill Curtis and Abe Peck, and they put me in touch with the guy from A&E, and they allowed me to use, they did this, uh, it was a whole show on, uh, half the show was on the, on the convention, the other half was on the trial. And I pulled out the commercials. So we, that's at the museum also. It's for people that, young people in particular, don't know don't under, know anything about the history. It gives you a pretty definitive history. And my mother has a pretty large interview in that as well. Right. So yeah. it's just about almost everything. I mean, her um, her jury summons she didn't throw away. Her special, the summons she got for the special, we, she didn't throw away anything. We have it all. And it's really incredible. And I was just so proud of her. And I mean, some of the things she wrote in her journal, how she was her... Her insight and her understanding uh, was just mind-blowing to me, how she was able to, 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 to come to the conclusions that she came to. The Historical Society, the Edgewater Historical Society, is at 5358 North Ashland Avenue in Chicago. 5358 North Ashland Avenue. Uh, you can see the exhibit uh, Saturdays and Sundays from 1 to 4. The Chicago Conspiracy Trial, One Juror's Ordeal. Uh, 50 years ago, Margie, and uh, you were talking about on the phone some of the parallels between then and now. Um, yeah, when I, I've, ta I've talked to a lot of uh, high school classes and I'm continuing to try to do that. Um, yeah, it, what, I, what I try to explain to the young people is like very similar to what they were doing to the Black Panthers at the time and uh, like in the Black, Life, Black, Matter, Black Lives Matter you know, mm -hmm. movement now. Um, like during the trial, uh, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were murdered by the FBI while the trial was going on, and the jurors, the jury had no idea that it happened. Um, I mean, the fact that they were murdering Black Panthers, they were imprisoning them, they were ransacking their offices, they were imprisoning, well, you know, anybody that was an anti-war demonstrator, and it was like America, love it or leave it. There was the division in the country was so strong. It, it's just so much like now with the Trump and anti-Trump people. There's just no compromise. There's no middle ground. And it, when I, you know, it, I've when I talk to the young people, it's like, I, you know, I say, you know, the Black Lives Matter unit, this uh, movement, this isn't something new. I mean, unfortunately, 50 years later, we're, we're not any further ahead in race relations than we were 50 years ago. And it's just there's so many parallels politically as well, you know, um, with Trump and with, you know, I mean, the hatred in the country. And I, it's just very sad. And I, I it's just I just want young people to understand that 
This has been going on for a very long time. <laughs> it's not something new. No, it didn't just happen yesterday. Yeah, it did not. Uh, Margie Fritz Birch. And the reason why I jokingly says she owes me lunch, we didn't technically make a bet. No, we didn't. We, <laughs> it was, lunch was not on the table. Uh, although I always take a free lunch. What happened was we were chatting on the phone and I was just hearing about, this is how my mind works in weird ways, uh, as everybody who knows me knows. And so we were talking about the Chicago conspiracy trial and I started singing a song by Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which I do really not like Crosby, Stills, Nash at all. But well, I did like it. That a huge They were one of my favorites when I was in college. Huge, she's got a uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash a tattoo that she's... <laughs> uh, and uh, so we started having a discussion about Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and I said, well, that's uh, this song, Won't You Please Come to Chicago, is about uh, coming to Chicago for the Chicago conspiracy trial, at which point Margie said, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> It's about coming to Chicago for the Democratic National Convention. And I said, uh-uh. So then I looked it up on my little phone, and guess who's right? You Me. were right. You, oh, I, I admit, you were right. But do you think I would be talking this much if I were wrong? Do you think I would even mention it? No, I would be. Yeah, you would barge me go, you owe me lunch. Uh, anyway, so uh, we have our next guest, Dave Glott, so we're going to bring him on. But Margie, I'd like to bring you back and maybe do a deep dive in September when we it's like the 50th anniversary when the trials started. Yeah. Read some of your mom's excerpts. Uh, I, we're, we're joking about that song, but this trial was so pivotal in the mm -hmm. history of Chicago and it illuminated uh, so many of the, you're right, the splits. Uh, that exists not just on a national level, but locally, and that still exists to this day. Mayor Daley uh, was really much championing the love it or leave it rhetoric. Oh, it, uh, but a, see, this was directed all the way down the line, you know, Hoover, Nixon, Mitchell, Daley. I mean, this was all planned. And Daley was a Democrat. Yeah, <laughs> well, Dave, that, what difference does that make? I mean, could I just read one thing go before ahead. I go off? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I had all these quotes that I, at some point, maybe we could later I could do, but this is just what she said after the verdict, which always just kind of makes me cry when I read it. And she said, in the quest for truth, with the four holdouts, Jean, Shirley, Mary, and Frida, feel it is time for us to speak. We convicted the defendants, Hoffman, Davis, Dellinger, Rubin, and Hayden, because Freunds and Weiner were found innocent on all counts. Mm -hmm on the anti-riot law, not because we felt they were crossing state lines to incite a riot, but because we wanted the defendants not guilty on the conspiracy charge. We compromised within ourselves and with no one else. We felt the defendants were guilty in asking people to come to Chicago, and then when the trouble started, they weren't there to help their people. But as of now, we can see that we had no right to take the lives of these men in our hands to find them guilty on a law that we firmly believe is unconstitutional. Hence, that was her almost nervous breakdown that she had. And when did she write that? Right after the verdict. Right after the verdict. Yeah. Uh, you could see the exhibit, the Chicago Conspiracy Trial, One Juror's Ordeal, 5358 North Ashland. Uh, it's the Edgewater Historical Society. Thank you so much, Margie. For Thank you so in. much. You have to come see the exhibit. Very good. Dave Glowitz is on deck. We'll bring him on uh. when we return. Read the Ooh. Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Hey! 
Playing now at Steppenwolf Theater, the world premiere of Ms. Black for President. It's inspired by the true, that's true as in it really happened, T-R-U-E story of Joan Jett Black, America's first drag queen presidential candidate. You know who created it, D? No. It was created by Tony nominee Tina Landau. Oh. And you know who else created it? No. Oscar winner Terrell Alvin McCraney. You know him, Moonlight. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. For tickets, visit Steppenwolf.org. That's Steppenwolf, like the rock group from the 60s, Hang tight, millennials. (laughs) Ms. Williamson, what's your response on the Flint water crisis? My response on the Flint water crisis is that Flint is just the tip of the iceberg. I was recently in Denmark, South Carolina, where it is there is a lot of talk about it being the next Flint. We we have an administration that has gutted the Clean Water Act. We have communities, particularly communities of color and disadvantaged communities all over this country who are suffering from environmental injustice. I assure you, I lived in Gross Point. What happened in Flint would not have happened in Gross Point. This is part of the dark underbelly of American society. The racism, the bigotry, and the entire conversation that we're having here tonight, if you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. We need to say it like it is. It's bigger than Flint. It's all over this country. It's particularly people of color. It's particularly people who do not have the money to fight back. And if the Democrats don't start saying it, then why would those people feel that they're there for us? And if those people don't feel it, they won't vote for us. And Donald Trump will win. It's almost football season, guys. Can you feel it in the air? Yeah, really? Me too. But that does mean that the best sports reporters in Chicago want to offer you, yes, you, our listeners, an exclusive deal on unlimited digital access to all. That's A-L-L, all of the stories that you love. Do not miss a game this season. Get all the big plays, scores, and stories from the Chicago Sun-Times. For a limited time only, you could test out digital access for only one dollar seriously one dollar there's no reason to not give this a shot okay stay up to date on breaking stories get the deep dives and investigations from sometimes reporters cheer for the big games with the best sports team in the city and go deep inside city hall with best in class political reporting one dollar for your first month you can't do better than that take advantage of this exclusive deal now at suntimes.com forward slash been and uh if you do this uh, little deal the chicago sun times got going i got news for you you are going to save so much money welcome back to the ben jarofsky show live from the chicago sun times yes indeed we are live from the chicago sun times dave glowatz is in the studio before we bring this young man on you got an update for me d absolutely i got an update here uh first up let's talk a little local politics as i said there in that commercial i just read Football season is upon us. Are you feeling it, Ben? Are you are you ready for some football? As that song used to say, <laughs> "Ready, baby." Ready, oh, set, twenty twenty. Oh, okay, he's ready, set, twenty twenty for football. Well, I tell you who else is ready for football? Illinois Governor J. B. Pritzker. That's right. <laughs> no, he's a football fan. He's not a perfect person, but he's ready for some football. Uh, he was at the uh, Bears practice. I'm not big into football. Wait, so you'll be able to tell when I. JB Pritzker was at the Bears practice. Yeah, yesterday. Today? Oh, no, yesterday. yesterday. How did I miss that? I don't know, Ben. Mm-hmm. Uh, Governor JB Pritzker walked onto the Olivia Nazarene University campus toward the end of practice, mingled with fans underneath a VIP awning. Oh, he was ready. Oh, look at him. <laughs> so they asked JB Pritzker his thoughts on the Bears season. J.B. Pritzker says, 
He expects a 16-0 and season <laughs> and yeah. a Super Bowl ring. Okay. Uh, I, I have a, a feeling, and I don't – I'm just – a feeling I have that J.B. Pritzker is not a sports fan. Okay? It's just – you know, I just don't get that vibe from him. Oh, you don't get that vibe, no. huh? Uh, Mayor Lightfoot, on the other hand, big-time sports fan, and uh, which – the. I remember interviewing her, tested her a little bit, her football knowledge, came right back strong, all right, you know? So, uh, and um, by the way, I just have to say we do bonus interviews. We're going to have Andy Constable and Madeline Kenny coming on, and they are two women sports writers here at my beloved Bright One, the Chicago Sun-Times. So we're going to do that first Joe Colley thing when it works so well, D. We're going to bring back another sports uh, writers. Huh? Oh, great. Yeah. More sports. <laughs> yeah. D, D, uh, Dr. D is not the biggest sports fan in the world. Oh, I do actually like sports. I just know its place in podcasting, and it's not on a political talk show. But anyway. Yeah, anyway. A new uh, poll uh, from Quinnipiac. I say that wrong every time. Yeah. University found that Elizabeth Warren has enjoyed a bump in support since the second debates, even as Joe Biden remains the front runner. Warren's support has jumped from 15% in a July 29 survey to 21%. In wow. the latest poll, Biden has remained relatively steady with his support dropping from 34% last month to 32% this month. Mr. $27 himself, Bernie Sanders, enjoyed a small bump from 11 to 14%, while Kamala Harris has dropped from 12% late last month to 7% wow. in the latest poll. Dang. Wow, that's um, that's a 32% for Biden, 21 for Warren, uh, 14 for Sanders. Maybe if Warren Sanders run as a unit, uh, they can be the, the joint nominees because uh, it seems like they're splitting that uh, lefty vote. Dave Glowatz in the studio, a huge Joe Biden fan. Uh, <laughs> with his bell, uh, it wouldn't be uh, Dave Glowatz. Mr. Biden always makes me ring my bell. Yes. Uh, where's the little piece of paper you want me to read oh, you have to wing it this time but after uh, all these years i think by now you know who i am i know I, I know but i love that paper i love the blue i wanted to see if you could handle it i do uh well we call him mr bike he's the world's most renowned expert on biking in the city of chicago he has a blog about biking uh he wrote a book about biking he wrote a bike here is that correct that's correct and um, the, the bell's not on it right now though it's right here but uh, but he's <laughs> but he's also an expert on Chicago politics. In the old days, the roles were reversed. He would interview me, and now uh, uh, I interview you. So yeah, better have some answers to these questions, young man. I've got, I've got a whole answers. List of questions. They may uh, not be to your questions. Oh, though. okay. In the spirit of Rahm Emanuel. Man, what's the matter with your voice? I've got a little, okay? a little laryngitis. Wow, recently. you all right? Want yeah. some water? Got water. Thanks. All right, boy. Okay, go easy now. You're a champ, dude. Yeah, Thanks yeah, for coming in. I, I know. Whisper he's he's playing. Oh wow. Pain. Seductive. Uh, this is some secret uh, stuff. Uh, <laughs> um. Anyway, I just have Wait, to. Can sh- I interrupt for a second? Go. I still have Dennis. I still haven't heard you use, do your Pritzker imitation. Oh really? Yeah. You haven't. No. Um. Well, the one we would always do. Uh, we. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's really not that good. <laughs> I'm <laughs> not a perfect person. I think it's pretty that's pretty good. good. Yeah. yeah okay. Do All your right. honor imitation. And uh, March Simpson. Oh, okay, please. put a quarter in the jukebox, pal. <laughs> His Lisa Simpson? Unbelievable. No, it's not. It's not even that good. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Jamie Pritzker. Uh, anyway. He loves football. Uh, 16 and 0. I don't believe he's really. A, do you believe J.B. Pritzker's a football fan? It's hard to know everything about him, right? Yeah. I just, I don't know. It just doesn't uh, strike me as a day. Um, all right. I 
want to talk uh, bike riding madness with you, but let's get down to the big issue of the day. Uh, and that has to do with, uh, well, there's two issues of the day where I talk locally with you. One will be about Lincoln Yards, the update, your, uh, the, the world's foremost authority on the Lincoln Yards TIF deal. Uh, you write about it, um, taking the deep dive into the You're probably the only guy out of, outside of the lawyers who actually read the contract. Uh, I don't know if Lori Lightfoot has even read the contract. She must have somebody who works for her read it. Uh, yes, but uh, you also read the city's report on aldermanic prerogative. Talk about this, would you? When uh, the mayor first took office on May 20th, she issued an executive order mm-hmm. that is meant to limit the degree to which city departments are supposed to let aldermen decide things that arguably these these departments have purview over, such as the Department of Planning and Development, Streets and Sanitation, Housing, uh, Transportation. But it wasn't clear in May exactly how that would roll out. So in her executive order, she required all city departments to issue a report within 60 days saying exactly how this order would affect their procedures. And as far as I can tell, that report came out early last week, and I have not been able to get my hands on it. I have talked to people who have it, who say they'll give it to me, but they haven't given it to me yet. What a city. But I do have um, uh, someone share with me a disclosure of a uh, presentation given to Alderman that show various things that aldermen had uh, sway over. Okay. Oh, I have my own copy. Thank that you. That now uh, they just have sort of advisory capability. So this, uh, oh my God, this this is secret. This thing looks like it was, a, it's a picture. It's a PowerPoint. Yeah, it's a picture right. of a PowerPoint. Yeah. And uh, so this is a PowerPoint that was presented by an official with the Lightfoot administration to aldermen uh, in private this was not a public meeting correct and uh this was the world as it will be under lori lightfoot with alderman of prerogative thrown out the window and let me just say this uh personally i believe this is a completely totally made up issue um that uh, somehow or other the public has fashioned on fastened on uh dave that all the problems we have in the city of chicago i would not put alderman of prerogative in the top 10, where would you place it? Do you think it's a serious issue? Do you, do you disagree with me in this point? I think if you look at this list, there are certain things I'm not too concerned about, but there are some things I am concerned about. Let's take a look at uh, this first area here, Department of Planning and Development. Go ahead. This shows about, I don't know, 10 items that say, instead of uh, the alderman essentially having to bless these things with a letter of support, prerogative, if you will, they now have input. So the Department of Planning gets to decide all these things with aldermanic input, which they could choose to ignore. And if we go half, halfway down the list, we'll see tax increment financing designation, TIF's district, TIF redevelopment agreements, uh, TIF under, 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 uh, intergovernmental agreements. So that could go either way in terms of good or bad before aldermen could essentially say yay or nay on a TIF district, arguably. That's actually not true. They, I would take the word, 
nothing has changed. So, for instance, the way a process works, if the city of Chicago, if the mayor of the city wants to create a TIF, uh, he or she uh, proposes the TIF. It goes through, there's a a series of rubber stamp approval process, which you've written about, you know them very well, Joint Review Board, uh, Community Development Commission. Uh, The alderman uh, has a role in that as, you know, know, uh, the alderman may sponsor a local the community meeting on it. The alderman may, may then can report back, uh, this is the old days, to the Community Development Commission, uh, to the Joint Review Board of what people said at that meeting. But he or she does not have, did never never had like a statutory uh, uh, nay or yay uh, veto power on it. It was just one voice in the chorus. Now, in the past, they've said that voice was very important, but as I've written about many times, and you and I talked about many times, if the mayor of the city of Chicago wanted to overrule an alderman on a TIF, the mayor would overrule it. We just saw this happen with the 78. In the 78 TIF, a humongous TIF deal that the city of Chicago passed on the last day of Mayor Rahm's uh, mayoralty, the alderman of the city of Chicago, Danny Solis, was hidden. He was in witness protection. Who knew where he was? But he didn't say no. He didn't say no but the incoming alderman he wasn't the, the alderman per, the, he was the person elected by the people Byron Sigcho Lopez was yeah. not yet the alderman yeah so this goes to show you there is no aldermanic uh, prerogative the alderman the alderman elect who was waiting to be sworn in uh, was ignored the alderman he wasn't the alderman <laughs> my point Ben is that wouldn't you agree with me that no tax or increment financing district has ever been approved where the alderman said no? Well, yes, but the alderman's position on that uh, TIF is the least is important thing. The most important thing in any TIF deal is the mayor's position. So, for instance, uh, going back to Byron Sixto Lopez, uh, you're making a distinction where there is none. He was the elected official of the people in the 25th Ward. That TIF deal was in the 25th Ward. He vehemently said he did not want the uh, TIF to be passed. He wanted an opportunity to review it, and they voted for it anyway. The sitting alderman, uh, Danny Solis, who uh, had gone and disappeared because he was caught wearing, it was revealed that he was wearing a, a wire and tapping, taping secretly at Burke, had no comment on that particular TIF because he was in hiding. So there was no support or uh, opposition from the sitting alderman and the alderman elect was against it and they still passed it which let's, goes to show you from talking about the past to moving to talking about the future but the, the point i'm making is that the um the alderman it this is why i'm saying alderman of Prague, my humble opinion is an exaggerated problem in the city of chicago because in reality it's the mayor's office that's always had the veto over things it's not the alderman and yet when mayor lightfoot wanted to make it seem as though she was reforming Chicago, she turned aldermen into the scapegoats and said she's going to get rid of aldermen and prerogative uh, when, in fact, she would still have the power if she wanted to to implement a TIF over an alderman. Do you agree with that point? I don't. Um, Okay. (laughs) Just based on two things. Yes. One is past experience. As I said, there has been no tax increment financing district that has passed in Chicago over an alderman's objection. Well, there's been no, that's because they're all on board with the mayor. So this is why I say what's going forward is yeah. more important. Yeah. Now there are a number of aldermen who won't go along. 
arguably, right? There are argument. There are aldermen who, uh, such as Byron Sancho Lopez, who are less inclined. I think you would agree to go along with the mayor just because the mayor wants, say, for example, a tax increment financing district. So now that that's in place, that there are some, whatever you want to call them, renegade aldermen or aldermen who are less likely to be a rubber stamp, now what we have is policy that says, oh, you don't have, uh, you don't, we don't require your letter of support anymore. We just have, you just have input. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? That these aldermen who now are less likely to agree have less of a voice. Yeah, and I'm simply saying they never had veto authority. They never, their letter of support, which is which is interesting, letter of support, that they call it letter of support. They don't even call it, like your opinion. They call it letter of support as though automatically it would be a letter of support. I'm saying that... I think we're being a dead horse here. Yeah. I'm, we can agree yeah. to disagree. Yeah, we're just gonna, yeah, we're just going to move on. Uh, I I don't believe that it, the aldermen were the pivotal force in uh, on any of these matters. Uh, it, well, the minor matters, perhaps, because the mayor doesn't care. But in general, I believe the Divi mayor stations? has more What's that? Divi stations? Uh, Divi, yeah, that's a relatively <laughs> minor. I said the minor matters. Yeah, Divi Station. Uh, yeah, or a like a awning, for instance. I think it'll, I think under Mayor Lightfoot as, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, so a demolition application, uh, does does that now require an alderman's approval or would, does the alderman have a role in that at all? That is the same as all the rest of them is that they're notified, but they don't, they don't have to approve. They're, they get input. One of the things you asked me about earlier was permits, which are not identified on this list. So I'm waiting to see the uh, memo that comes out from the city that specifically addresses the entire planning process from development inception to implementation, because this is this is a rather broad strokes. Um, and there are aldermen who are wondering the same thing. Like, One of the it's I think I told you this uh after the story broke that Mayor Lightfoot was going to change the way uh, the city operated and take a lot of the authority away from aldermen, um, I got a call from somebody who goes, do we go to our alderman for a block party permit or do we go to the city? The things people ask me, right? Well, you should know. Uh, and I said, I don't know. I I would go, still go to the alderman for a black party permit. Uh, you'll probably get a phone call back, if nothing else. Do you know if uh, black party permits uh, I fall? I think that's on here. Dead air. Uh, yeah. We're both perusing yeah, this the list. Uh, list here. So, Eddie, did you think it's black, black party permits? Are, uh, yeah, per- I think that's still, um, this is also of the piece of having city approval. And the uh, aldermen can weigh in, but uh, I don't think they have, uh, like the bounty house, you know, that's, that's still going to be, uh, see, who is, where did bounty houses come from? Department of Cultural Affairs, special events, I think. Yeah. And so um, SSA appointments and budgets, uh, these are all special department service of play, special service areas, TIF designation, small business improvement fund. So uh, this, the, it, it, has any of this been um, approved? It it went into effect July 19th. Mm -hmm. But as I say, this memo that details exactly how the departments are going to proceed is out there. Apparently, the aldermen have it. Uh, (laughs) 
we're not it's not clear yet they can make it public i'm i'm trying to get it but uh when it when they do get it it'll be on shygov.com c-h-i-g-o-v.com uh dave guards is my guest mr bike he is breaking down on what uh is changed with alderman and prerogative we have a vehement disagreement on it i say it's a non-existent issue that's made up by more mayor lightfoot uh dave glowett says it's a very existent issue that was not made up by Lori Lightfoot. When we return, we're going to have a conversation about something we agree on. Lincoln Yards. We'll be right back. I've seen a whole lot of catfish, some turtles. Uh, no gators yet, though. This is an awfully big body of water. We're looking for a needle in a haystack. And we're talking about a needle that moves constantly. He's checked the floating traps he hand curated. Right now is a combination of drumsticks, rats, and uh, smelt. Yum. Well, as far as the gator goes, that's a pretty good offering. We're hoping that the, the wind blowing the scent across the water will catch his attention. We're all speculating on, on whether he grew up in somebody's you know, bathtub or backyard or something. He's enjoying the, the five feet of water. He probably was raised in six inches. If we could find the animal, we can capture the animal. Damn, I miss Gator Pop. Today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you in part by Green Element Resale. It's a thrift shop located at 6241 North Broadway in Chicago. And people, it is amazing. Furniture, appliances, lamps, books, clothes, antiques, candles. It's a thrift shop, but it's the only thrift shop in Chicago that helps bring you the Ben Jarofsky show. So if you're ever on Broadway between Granville and Devon, tell them thank you and go check out Green Element Resale, 6241 North Broadway and find more information at GreenElementResale.com. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Mr. Jarofsky, take us home. Yes, indeed. Dave Gloritz is with me, Mr. Bike. We are talking about automatic prerogative. Uh, Dave, let's talk about the Lincoln Yards deal. Uh, and you're, you've reported uh, extensively on this huge TIF deal, which was passed, uh, what was it? April. April. Good God, time is flying. Uh, but we'll commit uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to redevelop one corner of the city. Uh, that's right near the hideout where I'll be tonight at 630. 54 uh, acres between Cortland Avenue to the north, North Avenue to the south, the river to the east, and roughly Elston to the west. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lawsuit was filed shortly thereafter. Give us the update on all this. Well, as your listeners might know, the Lincoln Yards development is going to be uh, something around 6,000 residential units tens of thousands of commercial uh, square feet uh, being developed over the next 10 years. And there's a city subsidy of about subsidy, about $1.3 billion, which will go to the developer Sterling Bay to build things like roads, bridges, an extension to a bike trail, the 606 trail through and in Lincoln yards. That's, Work hasn't been done yet, though a contract has been signed between the city and Sterling Bay. That contract is called the Redevelopment Agreement. But in the midst of all that, right after the contract was signed, two nonprofit organizations, Grassroots Collaborative and Raise Hand for, Pub- for Illinois Public Education, folks from which you've had here on your show, filed a lawsuit against the city making uh, trying to stop construction of Lincoln Yards. They're trying to do two things. They're trying to stop construction of Lincoln Yards with an injunction and the approval of any further tax increment financing districts. 
And they have three bases in their lawsuit for uh, claiming that there's, that there's a reason for this. One of them is um, count one here. I have the uh, lawsuit here. Count one of the complaints says that the city has violated the Illinois Civil Rights Act because, um, quote, the way in which the city designates TIF districts causes a disparate impact on more minority compute communities. And uh, the particular TIF district around Lincoln Yards, the Cortland Chicago River TIF district in particular, causes that sort of uh, disparate impact. And what they're talking about simply is gentrification. So that's the first claim. The second claim is that um, according to state law, which is the Tax Increment Allocation Redevelopment Act, which is, it has an acronym called TIARA, which is interesting, given that the Crown family is heavily involved in the development of Lincoln Yards. Um, the act says that the, the subsidy is not to be provided to an area unless that subsidy would not, that, de- that development would not take place but for the subsidy, mm-hmm. which you often call the but for clause. Mm-hmm. So in other words, without this subsidy, this thing would not get built. Mm-hmm. And the plaintiffs say, that's not true here, that this is at a very uh, up and coming riverfront area sit- sitting smack between Lincoln uh, Park on the east and Bucktown on the west, Logan Square in the northwest, and the subsidy is not needed for building roads and bridges, et cetera. The other allegation the plaintiffs make is that the the act, Tiara, requires the area to be blighted in order to provide the subsidy. And granted, it looked blighted after the existing development, which was the Finkel Steel uh, Factory, steel, uh, what do they call that? Uh, steel, steel foundry. Mm-hmm. Foundry was torn down. It looks blighted. It looks like, you know, the surface of the moon, and there was a city uh, fleet management facility, which was also torn down. So the city claimed that the area is now blighted, and so it's <laughs> deserving of a subsidy. Okay. So the plaintiffs say, no, it's not blighted. So it doesn't meet that um, those criteria. So basically, the plaintiffs say, stop this thing. Don't let it go further until there's uh, a re- some remedy to this, to this allegation. So they filed this um, lawsuit shortly after the contract was let in April. Most recently, July 3rd, my birthday, coincidentally, the city filed a motion essentially asking for the lawsuit to get tossed, mm. saying that these plaintiffs have no standing. And to quote from their motion, they said, the plaintiffs, quote, the plaintiffs have now suffered, suffered distinct palpable injuries to a legally cognizable interest that they hold, nor is any injury they claim to have suffered fairly traceable to the city's actions, unquote. So the city says lawsuits should be dismissed because essentially the plaintiffs have no cause to say that they're being injured mm. by uh, this development. What do you think of that uh, response? Well, that's pretty standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a lawsuit where the person, like who arguably would be, who would be an individual who would be injured by this? Let's say somebody, some nearby property owner whose property taxes go up because of um, the, rate, the rise in development uh, values. 
because of Lincoln Yards. They arguably might have standing, but they're not a party to this lawsuit. I'm just speaking not as an attorney, but, you know, just you know, kind of blue skying here. Mm-hmm. So in a, uh, in a broad sense, any defendant is going to try to, to get, in the, which in this case, the city, yeah. is going to try to get the thing tossed out on the first possible sort of invalidation, mm-hmm. this case being no standing. We could also talk about why the Lightfoot administration went down this path. Yes, good question. Answer that. Well, the, the, the question is invited because Lori Lightfoot took a pretty vocal stand. Mayor Lightfoot, before she was mayor, took a pretty vocal stand against this development and the 78, which is a slightly larger development on the, north, on the south branch of the Chicago River. So there was some speculation and hope on the, on the part of the plaintiffs that her law department would say, you know what, you're right. Let's not, let's not do this. Let's not do this development. Let's, let's stand back and let's see if we can come to some settlement here. But instead, they've done what defendants normally do in these cases, as I say, try to get to get it tossed due to no standing. Now, I don't know if you know, but I have a, a little side gig as an expert witness in bike crash cases. You know, I'm putting on my Mr. Bike helmet now. And I've been... Uh, <laughs> Your Mr. Bike helmet. That's I've been well uh, uh, sort of a bell ringer in, uh, in certain <laughs> cases where bike, bicycle riders have been killed or injured mm. working on behalf of yeah. the plaintiffs uh, uh, where the defendants are motorists. Mm-hmm. And I, I know from that experience that the parties always want generally to go to a settlement rather than go to court because mm. the more that they go to court, the more that they are likely to incur higher fees for whatever, for whatever side loses. I see. We see this repeatedly in police yeah. abuse cases, right? There's almost always a settlement. They vary yeah. the lawsuits by citizens against the city and the police department for police abuse cases, police brutality cases almost never go to court. They're almost always settled by the city and the plaintiffs for tens of thousands or tens of millions of dollars. So to me, this would be a a pretty understandable tactic on the part of the Lightfoot administration to just put this first, you know, hurdle up as a uh, tactic to negotiation Uh with grassroots collaborative and raise your hand. So what do you think, ultimately, if it does come down to a negotiation, and you could be right about this, uh, let's assume you are, and it comes down to negotiation, what is Lori Lightfoot looking for from grassroots? In other words, does she want to continue with the uh, TIF project itself, and then she's looking to see what it'll take to get them to leave? Or is she, does she want to, you know, dismiss the the TIF deal? Like, what ultimately is her goal out of negotiations? I have no clue. I can only speculate. <clears throat> and um, my speculations are as follows. First of all, I don't think Lincoln Yards is going to stop. It's going to, it's going to get built. Mm-hmm. The subsidy is codified in city ordinance. So that's going to be... That would be a tricky thing to get pulled back. The thing that this, that she has a little bit of, she has some leverage on, which is the thing that I've been interested in from a journalist standpoint, is how quickly and completely 
the subsidy is provided. And that's where she has wiggle room because all the subsidy bend is for uh, public property, for roads and bridges, Mm -hmm. not specifically for the development. And the subsidy of $1.3 billion specified in the TIF agreement, the TIF um, ordinance and the redevelopment agreement is a ceiling. In other words, they could spend 100,000, you know, it's not, it's not a mandated that they spend that. So this might give her some, you know, the, this, these tactics might give her, start to give her some wiggle room to say, you know what, we're not going to spend, you know, 200K on an Elston-Ashland intersection redo. We're going to spend 100, or no, I'm sorry, not 200K, 200 million, 100 million, things along those lines, ways to sort of scale it back. A little bit. I see. So that, that's to me the most likely outcome. So she'll use this lawsuit as uh, justification uh, t- to scale back the project and telling the, um, uh, the 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 developer, I have no choice. This lawsuit is forcing me to do that. Is that your is where you're going? At for this? for her, just you know, trying to play chess here, or maybe poker is the better analogy. Yeah. Here's a, a Star Trek reference. Um, <laughs> First, first, first series. I'll, I'll tell you about it later. Uh, uh, Star Trek reference. Kirk says, "Not chess, Mister Spock. Poker." Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> I always good to have a Star Trek reference. Uh, um, so that could be what she's up to. And so that, that if she if she just knuckles under to yeah, the lawsuit, yeah. Sterling Bay could say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait a minute! You know, we've got a contract. We've got city ordinance here." Whereas she fights it a little bit, that strengthens her position with Sterling Bank. Oh, man. These are wheels within wheels. It's poker. Uh, it's poker. Or t- I, I don't know. I like that chess <laughs> thing, man. Uh, and, uh, well, I guess poker could be like a bluff or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so, so, and, of course, uh, she filed, or her lawyer, the city's lawyers, uh, filed uh, that move that motion on my birthday uh, on your birthday. And now we're waiting to hear from the law, the, the plaintiffs, plaintiffs, the plaintiffs filed a, a, a response on, uh, August 2nd. Oh, wow. Just the other day. And, uh, the, according to the court clerk's website, uh, which I say with a sardonic smile, um, there's a status call set for August 16th. The reason I, I smirk is because um, having done a lot of reporting in the federal court system, I know that I could go right to the federal court's online case management system and see all the motions. I could read them all in every last detail. We can't do that in Cook County. The largest county uh, court system in the United States. We could read um, the dates of the motions, but that's it. We still can't uh, find out exactly what was moved. uh, It's... It's yeah, it's it's like in the last century uh, in Cook County, um, so that yeah, we'll be following that one uh, closely. Have probably have you back in. Like I said, Amisha Patel from Grassroots Collaborative was on the show not too long ago talking about that was before they had fil- filed their response, uh, and and so we'll be following this one uh, because you're absolutely correct. A lot of money's at stake, a lot of uh, tax dollars at Lincoln Yards, and it probably has some uh, ramifications for 78, which is interesting. We had Byron Sixto Lopez on there going back to Alderman and Prerogative, and uh, the TIF has been created, but now there's a new alderman, 
it's a, a very interesting uh, parallel. In the case of Lincoln Yards, almost all the development deals in that area have been put in uh, one ward, the second ward, uh, under the jurisdiction of Brian uh, Alderman Brian Hopkins, one of your favorite aldermen. Uh, and uh, we go way back. Yeah, you go way back. Uh, and he's very pro development. He was the one who championed Lincoln Yards. Uh, in the case of the twenty fifth ward, it, Danny Solis had been the alderman. They put so many mega deals in the 25th Ward, figuring, you know, that he would be pro-development. Guess what? He had to leave because he got in trouble uh, for taping uh, Ed Burke's conversations. They got Byron Sixto Lopez is in there, who's like the anti-Danny Solis, the anti-Brian Hopkins. So nobody knows what to make of that if Alderman truly have... Pro- Isn't that interesting? They're getting rid of Alderman and prerogative uh, at the very moment that we have an Alderman who's a little skeptical about development. You're reinforcing my earlier point. Yes, okay. Well, we're back to that <laughs> argument. All right. Uh, before uh, we allow you to head on your bike uh, out, out the door, I have to ask you for your opinion. Play judge in this matter. Uh you, uh, Dave has written a manual, a book about uh, biking in the city of Chicago, and in many instances he gives advice. To Did I say the name? Urban Bikers Tricks and Tips. Yes, which is usually on a piece of paper that he gives me, <laughs> uh, and uh, you could get it on the internet. All right, anyway, so the other day I'm riding my bike, I'm going through an intersection, and as I told you, the, not, the light is not only green, but it's that moment of the intersection when it's supposed to be most advantageous to a pedestrian and bike rider when it says walk so in other words it's not even ticking down you know where it gets it's walk for a while then it goes don't walk but then it ticks down you know it's walk and this car turning left uh really in a a hustle to beat the oncoming traffic so it was really hustling to turn left this is a left turn that would go in front of you that is correct a car that would otherwise be coming straight yes and uh uh starts making the turn and as i'm riding through the intersection i point to the walk sign. The walk sign going, hey, it says walk. And I am sorry to report what that motorist said to me, young Dave. Uh, it wasn't have a nice day. <laughs> it wasn't have a nice it wasn't, day. I'm sorry, go it ahead. It wasn't, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. It wasn't my bad. It was, quote, I don't say these words on this show. Thank you. Thank uh, even though you can. Yeah, I can, but I don't. Uh, Maya dropped enough f-bombs yeah earlier. we had enough there we had enough uh but it you was have to put an explicit rating on the podcast episode right? yes, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely absolutely some, with some Creates of our guests more, more than yeah. others yeah. anyway f you okay that's what she said to me young dave and it wasn't f it was the real word so uh as as mr bike what what is your advice what should a cyclist do in a moment like that <laughs> Page 148 of Urban Bikers Tricks and Tips has a range of tactics that one could take on when dealing with conflicts with motorists in traffic. And they range from simply ignoring them. Mm-hmm. Another is uh, trying to perplex them, what the, I call the, um, the hey pat response. And you could strike back, and you did something in the middle. You you did sort of, sort of try to uh, educate. You were arguably trying to educate this woman. Like, yeah. look, you know, you should have. You were saying you should have yielded to me. Yes. You're saying to this woman, Mister Bike says that it's generally very difficult to mm-hmm. educate a motorist in traffic unless you're wearing a badge. So, you know, that's why I don't try. I try not to do yeah. it. Um, so the perplexing one. In that situation, you could have waved to her and with a big smile said, hey, Pat, 
And the pad is, if you teach yourself to do that, pad is unisex, so you could use it for all moments, right, you know? Right, right. And then they'll be like, wait, do I know that guy? You know, he's <laughs> like, just a confounding kind of thing, just for your own amusement, just so you can get yeah. some reaction. You know what? Uh, <laughs> I actually do something like that. It's funny you should mention that. When, um, uh, Dennis has been with me when I've done this. He, uh, we're, so we're walking down the street and a car honks and it's got nothing to do with me. I, hey, I oh, yeah, it's embarrassing. <laughs> I always <laughs> He has read my book. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what's going on, man? Anyway. But if you use a name, then yeah, it's even yeah, more it's like, even oh, That's like, a good tip. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I was like, hey. And then they said, well, whatever. Anyway, Chicago's a tough city. Uh, and if you're going to ride a bike, you, uh, you should keep, get my book. You should get his book. One more time. What's the name of the book and where can they get it? Urban Bikers Tricks and Tips. You can go to Mr. Bike's website, which is mrbike, mrbike.com, and you'll find it right there. All right. Very good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Money rolling in. Money rolling in. <laughs> All right. That's great, Dave Glowatz. And uh, he is a regular in our show. We'll bring him back uh, next month to talk more about, get the updates on Lincoln Yards and all the other tip. I didn't even get to tell you about my my TIFF column, but we'll talk about that next time you're on the show. I deal. Just, uh, deal. Very good. Thank you very much, Dave Glowatz. Uh, also want to thank uh, Margie Fritz Birch uh, from the Edgewater Historical Society. She's talking about the Chicago conspiracy trial, the uh, exhibit that's uh, about her mother's days as a juror on that trial. 5358 North Ashland. Maya Dukmasova was our guest, our first guest. Great job she did. Talking about Toni Morrison. We had a long conversation about the great Toni Morrison. Leah, I want to thank you for your good work. Leah, playing at a disadvantage today without a phone. Man, she really uh, marshaled through, did a great job. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. And, Dave, as you know, because you're a longtime guest on this show, you know what they call him back in Alton, don't you? I do. Yes, and that is? Uh, that thing you always say. Yes, white lightning. <laughs> you always say. Uh, you did a great job. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites, chicago.suntimes.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y, chicagoreader.com, and wherever else you download your favorite podcast. Downloaders, we live stream this show Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time on both websites, Chicago Reader and Chicago Sun-Times, and the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. Check it out. Find us on social media, at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J, show. Give us a like, follow, share, review, whatever you want to do, and be sure tonight at 6.30 to check out Ben Jarofsky and Mick Dumkey's first Tuesday show at The Hideout, all things healthcare with host of an arm and a leg podcast, Dan Weissman. Go check it out. 1354 West Wabonzia, the hideout. And hey, Ben, Ben, Ben will buy you drinks. That'll be cool, huh? Wait, what?